This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 473 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Benjamin Martin. Now, I met Benjamin a few years ago now at Fire East, and we discussed doing a podcast then and ended up waiting for quite a while till we finally sat down a few weeks ago. But I'm so glad that we did because we covered a host of topics from leadership and shifts and sleep deprivation and fitness and all kinds of things. But then he goes on to tell a very powerful story of a huge leadership mistake. Um, and it's those, I think, that really teach us, the ones that we can really glean the leadership lessons from are the ones where we fail and we learn from that and then we grow and become a much better version of ourselves. So before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Benjamin Martin. Enjoy. Well, Benjamin, I want to start by saying thank you so much, not only for coming on the show, but for your patience, because passing ships in the night, I think that we talked about doing this about four years ago. So let me start yeah. by saying welcome. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I'm actually kind of glad we didn't do this four years ago, because I think the conversation is going to be a lot more enriched. Um, it's funny how much I thought I knew and then how little I do. And every year I get a little bit smarter, I think. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm the same. Every year I realize how dumb I actually am. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, for people listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So I'm coming uh, to you from the third floor of my home in Montpelier, Virginia, which is uh, in Hanover County outside the state's capital, Richmond. So I uh, worked yesterday. I work tomorrow. So if I'm a, a little drowsy or incoherent, that uh, that could be a little bit, the, the lack of sleep, but uh, otherwise, I'm, I'm doing well. You're not saying there's sleep deprivation in the fire service, are you? No, I would never say that because <laughs> Lord help us if we did and they tried to take away our 24-hour shifts, there'd be a mutiny. So, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of that for a second, because I mean, I, th I think in the fire service, 24-hour shifts are the best way for us to do our job because unlike law enforcement or the ER, for example, we have so much that we have to do, you know, there's, there's so many checks and, and we do have an environment where we have bedrooms in a station. So I think the 24s are okay. For me, what the issue is, is the amount of time between each shift for recovery. So you being in Virginia, are you guys 24-72 or are you 24-48? So we've got this weird shift that I know, uh, I've, I've only ever seen it called a 721. So it's a three-week cycle and it starts on a Tuesday. And so you go on off for eight days. So I'd work Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Monday, and then I have the 24 hours off in between. And then we get three days off. So I've worked that Monday. I'd come back 
Friday. I get that Saturday off. I work that Sunday. I get two days off. I come back Wednesday and then I get five days off where I come back and I work Tuesday. So the uh, Monday, Friday stretch with the three days off in between, not bad. The Friday, Sunday with one day off, it's okay. The five days off, obviously wonderful, but that Tuesday through Monday stretch of on off is um, miserable. But, you know, the, the irony, of, I think, in, in, in talking about this is uh, we can give each other all the time off we want, but how would you use it? So if you're like any other firefighter that I've grown up with, or you're like me, you have at least one, if not two, if not three side hustles that you're trying to work and make money. So, you know, the fire department could give you 72 hours off, but if you're running a landscaping company and then you go immediately from the firehouse instead of going home to sleep and you're running that, and then you've got young children who are keeping you up, it's, it's, uh, I don't know what the answer to it is. Um, but I can tell you the 24 on 24 off is not it. No. Um, I, I seem to like the 20, I see the 24 72. I've never worked it, but it seems really, really attractive. Um, of all the schedules I've seen. Now, when you add up your hours, what's your average work week then with that schedule? So the average is 56 hours, yeah, so. uh, 112 every pay, but obviously it's, it's not, you know, 96 hours inside that one week window. So, yeah, see, that's, that's brutal. I had the same exact pattern. Well, I mean, a, a version of, but a very, very similar in Anaheim. When I worked out there, it was, it was a tour, four days off, a tour, six days off, but it was a 56 hour work week. And when you were in the middle of that one on one off, it was, it was rough. It really was. And it's, it's funny because I get that same response that you just gave me a lot. And I agree that the problem is people talk about either the shifts that they're given at the station or, what they do at home and I very rarely hear well why, why don't we address both so for me I don't think it's a bad thing if you go hang drywall for eight hours when you get off now should you rest ideally absolutely but you're still going to be in your own bed you're going to be physically exhausted you're probably going to sleep really well the issue I have is when there's a shitload of overtime that people take at the same department which people talk about that. It's like, well, if you staff it properly, you're not going to have that available. So there's one solution fixed, staff your department properly. But secondly, educating the men and women that work, if you're going to work, work between nine to five. Don't go take a night ER job because now you are part of the problem then. So if those two conversations are simultaneous and you use your time in between wisely and you might, you know, a lot of us aren't paid very well. You might need to pick up some extra money, but you understand that you need to be at home in the evenings I think that then would be the the perfect solution. You know, a, a 42 hour work week, however it's, you know, amassed is to me the most sensible for people that you're asking to, you know, work on their children at three in the morning. Yeah. And what's interesting is, I mean, our fire department's probably much like others. There are stations that will run one call a day, every other day. Um, and then you travel six miles down the road and there's the busiest station and they're running 15, 20 calls, 25 calls sometimes, even 30, um, with multiple units still running 30 calls a day. So if you're like, all right, you know, working 48 hours in a row at the one place with one call a day, that's, that's not killing anybody. But like I've done the busy places when I was younger and like, I feel it, I see it in my health. Um, I can feel it in my mind and, and I've listened to your podcast when you've interviewed people that are experts on it. And, and that's definitely concerning to me, um, about, you know, what we could do about it. So I try to tell young folks, you know, when, if I could give you advice about the career is don't let your, don't build your life that it requires, you know, two incomes, you know, really stay modest in what you're doing and leave yourself some options. And if there are opportunities when you don't have children to work overtime and, you know, then do it. But, um, 
I, I was guilty of this. You know, I bought a big house, uh, you know, when the recession came because I wanted to grow into it and ended up moving out of it five years later because I couldn't afford it because the only way to afford it was to work an additional construction job. And I was missing my children terribly. So, you know, I'm guilty of that. So that that's definitely something that I think we need to talk about when we talk about retirement. Let's just talk about it right up front. Like <laughs> you've got to build a life that you want to come back to, that there are people that will want you there uh, when you're done with your 25 years or 20 years or, or whatever your career is. Yeah, absolutely. I remember going, when I first got hired by Anaheim, it was 2005. And so it was before the crash and all these firefighters, and they were well-paid in Southern California. A lot of them are, but obviously the <laughs> yeah. cost of living is very high too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these guys had fifth wheels, you know, Winnebago's, jet skis, motorbikes. And I'm there like driving my little beat up Nissan Central that I paid cash for when I moved to America and I'm getting laughed at and they called it my cream puff. But, you know, sadly, and I'm not, I'm not laughing and saying told you so, but sadly, a few years later, those men and women didn't have those toys anymore because the, the crash hit and they were living on, on borrowed money. So, and then to make up for it, working their ass off, you know, overtime and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, that, 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 bilateral conversation has to be had but i think with the busy station fire quiet station thing as well the military is a good example some of our men and women are in afghanistan right now dodging bullets and some of them are in an administrative building back home and those ranks are getting paid the same under the same work you know what i mean so we if we want everyone to be exactly the same we're also not going to be able to fix this problem we need to advocate right. for the people in the worst situations. And if it makes better for people in quiet stations, that's not a bad thing. As long as they're training, as long as they're working out, as long as they're prepared, then why is that a negative? Yeah. And I think, you know, this is a segue. I'm sure we'll talk about leadership at some point. But uh, I, I think in any conversation about the fire service, you have to realize that it's not just an isolated uh, event where you can fix one thing and then the, re- uh, the rest of the system doesn't antagonize it. So we could go to the 24, 72 hours. But that doesn't fix any of the things we just mentioned, like lifestyle and financial choices and working a second or third job um, or even being aware of third shift work and, and the, you know, the, the known health concerns for that kind of stuff. So, you know, when we get to that leadership part, it's like I can give you an answer, but that doesn't mean it's the answer. It's just an aspect, you know, and there are other answers you have to consider as well. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm a big fan of reverse engineering issues because if you if you educate people on sleep deprivation for example and we're all you know throwing our hands in the air with the mental health crisis at the moment with the cancer crisis but mental health all we're talking about is what we see and the cancer it's all you know wash your gear and yes yes on both but that's not the whole you know but if you get people to understand what shifts do to us then at an ownership level and a leadership level now you've got an understanding that then i hope will force change but if you just say oh we're changing shifts because we're changing shifts without understanding the why then of course it's gonna you know it's not gonna have the effects that we need yeah i think all of this is underscored by the statement of no better do better you know as, as you learn better than do better and that's all you can really hope for and just have the conversation which is why i love your podcast so much because you've got such a diverse array of topics and people uh and you're not just listening to people in the fire service so um that's cool i i, I find a lot of value and stuff like that beautiful yeah i mean that's the goal because we're people first and firefighters yeah. second um all right well then back on your kind of timeline then so tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings uh, so I'm a homebody. So I grew up about three hours uh, east of here. 
Um, and then my parents were older when, especially my father, when I was younger. And I think that's probably what got me into public safety was, uh, I can remember like I was 12 or 11 or 12 and we went to stay with some friends of the family. And I, I don't know why it was just like, pack up your stuff and go. And then come to find out my father had been having chest pain for months. Um, put you know, especially when he cut the grass and my mom, who was a nurse said, if you don't go to the doctor, I'm leaving you and I'm taking the children. So he went and he had like a 99% blockage in his LAD. So they kept him. And then that's when we got taken to the neighbors. And I think about that. And, you know, that was almost 30 years ago. And I was lucky that he just passed away last year. So I got so much more time with him than I ever thought I would growing up. But I think about that, not having the information to be able to recognize that there was a problem um, really kind of haunted me through through high school and college and really, I think, affected my my wanting to help people and having the education to have uh, to be able to recognize problems that maybe they couldn't see in themselves. Um, so whether that's the fire service, whether that was EMS or whether it was leadership, I think that's always what drives me back through there. Um, so I grew up, I did the, the normal kid thing. I had two wonderful parents. They were, they were both educators, uh, after my mom stopped being a nurse, uh, went to college, got a bachelor's, played football, got into rugby. Um, when I was at college, that's when I started volunteering. And then I was pre-med at the time and, and that quickly went away, uh, cause I, I just fell in love with, you know, going code three to stuff and, and really all the different wonderful aspects. It was never the same day twice. And it was so cool. So I did that uh, for a couple of years as a volunteer, and then I was offered a chance to, to do it paid uh, for the Niagara County Division of Fire in Virginia. And so that's what brought me to Richmond, uh, where I met my wife. And now we've got two beautiful kids, Ayla, who's 10, or getting ready to turn 10, Camille, who's getting ready to turn 8. Um, and that's like that's that's a, that's a quick version of, of, uh, of, the, of where we find ourselves today. Brilliant. Well, going back firstly to that realization with your dad, and I'm sorry to hear that you lost him last year, but as you said, I mean, that could have been 30 years shorter. Um, yeah. It's an interesting perspective because I had some conversations recently, one uh, Jason Blitzer, who's a lifeguard in Hawaii, um, and he's doing a great job of bringing, you know, first responder um life-saving intervention training and equipment to not only beaches out there, but also youth programs and things like that. And the fact that we don't teach first aid, CPR, choking intervention in schools, period, when you take a step back as a responder is, is insanity. So, you know, that desire to want to know how to, you know, stop a bleed, for example, put those poor kids that are in some of these shootings, imagine if they'd had tourniquets there and they'd been trained, you know, would we have lost, I mean, saved even more lives. So um, what's your take on that? Having experienced that firsthand, that kind of... Um, realization that you didn't have the tools to affect your father's health at that moment in time about that philosophy in our schools and, and making life-saving, whether it's the, the the first aid element, whether it's the swimming element, but teaching how to help others more in our schools and colleges. So absolutely. Um, I think the problems that we have, the solutions to those problems are the people that are actually creating the problems in the first place. Like, a lack of access to basic health care, a lot of that stuff could be fixed with basic education, you know, whether it's about changing their lifestyle or uh, making better choices about, you know, where they're working or what they're doing. Um, but we just assume they have it. And it's amazing to talk with people and, you know, what's your blood pressure? And they don't even know what a blood pressure is. And you're talking to a 45-year-old man. And like, how, how could you have never heard this before? 
So we, you know, especially with all the schooling that we've gotten uh, or I've gotten over the last 20 years in fire service, you really take for granted what common sense is. Uh, and I think we see that. So anytime you can go out and you can educate people to help themselves, especially when it's prevention aspect, I feel like that just one, it makes society better. Right. That's I think that's the difference between um, being an employee and then actually looking at the fire service as an opportunity to be a citizen in your community is engaging that community, not just in the, the 911 capacity, but giving them information in which they can make better choices and help themselves uh, certainly allows you to do what you need to do in the fire service more of. Take away all those BLS calls that we don't find very important. Um, and this, this would be a lot more fun at work, a lot more time to train, a lot more time to run the serious calls. But you know, we only want to focus on the reactionary, not necessarily the proactive measures. Yeah. Well, I think that's exactly it. I mean, sadly, you know, PE is being cut in a lot of schools, you know, the, the, the food that they serve in our schools, I think is horrendous. Um, you know, and again, it's the same conversation we just had on shifts. You know, there's an ownership component, of course, at home, but sadly, some homes, just, the kids aren't going to get that education. They're not going to get that support. They're not going to be, have someone who's taken the time to show them how to cook something basic, you know, so that whole skill set is lost. You know, the grandparents yeah. probably cooked and the, the, the child has no one to teach them how to, how to, you know, what, what a vegetable even looks like. How do you, how do you peel a carrot? How do you cut a potato? You know, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that that proactive side, I think, is is so so undervalued, and I think that if we address that particular part in schools, sadly, our age group now is kind of a loss. But our children, we could break that cycle and start another generation that isn't going to die younger than their parents. Yeah. So I'm a fan of lifelong learning, and we definitely need to rethink education. And what's interesting is we have access to so much information now, including fake information, unfortunately. Um, so when you look at like the K through 12 model and, and what they're teaching in schools, um, you're right, like a culinary class or a basic accounting class or a small engines class, things that we traditionally would not have associated as having a lot of value for, for young people is very important because the stuff that we're forcing them to memorize, so much of that stuff is easily referenced at, you know, at the drop of a hat and they don't necessarily need that. So I, I would love, and I, I try to, you know, when I'm teaching or with my children, um, I'm trying to, to, to raise, you know, perf- I mean, I guess beautiful human beings is what, is what I'm trying to say. Like, they don't have to be perfect and they don't have to be the smartest people, but thoughtful, loving, kind are the, are the three values that we try to teach in them every day in their behavior. Um, and if, they, if they're great at algebra, that's great. But I'm more concerned about the thoughtful, loving, kind piece. Because uh, if I can teach them that and then teach them to be curious and to think critically – I'm comfortable that they're going to be able to overcome a lot of the things that most people won't. But memorizing all 50 states and being able to recount that for tests, I don't know if that's the best use of our education system anymore. No, going to visit states and seeing it for yourself and experiencing it and learning the yeah. history and going to the Charleston you know, Slave Museum and things like that, that's what's more right. important. Yeah, spending time as a family, going around and seeing different parts of the country and, and different people and different aspects of, of um, the population – yeah, absolutely. I agree with you there. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned the the BLS calls. Before I forget, I just had a guest on, Jason, who um, now works for a a company called MD Ally. And there are other companies about around, but I mean, he reached out to me and this seems to be a great one. And they're doing something very innovative coming out of this last year. And as there's some, you know, obviously some positive takeaways from this, sadly, I think there's a lot of 
lessons learned that were completely suppressed when it comes to you know proactive you know underlying health for example but um they are using telemedicine and integrating with 911 systems so let's say your department someone calls 911 little susie their first child 3 year old now has a fever has thrown up once you know and they're freaking out and the person says well look do you want us to send an ambulance with with paramedics or would you like to speak to an ER physician first oh well yeah that would be great actually they give them the you know appropriate advice give them the warning signs where they do need to call for an ambulance they put their mind at ease they can send a prescription to Walgreens and then that's it to me that seems like a great another proactive way of eliminating some of the unnecessary calls and not only fire and EMS but also police when it's mental health for example um and also stopping sending three year olds into an ER with you know drunks and gangbangers and everyone else that's around us in a usual ER so just kind of, it's not even really a question but sowing a seed Everyone listening, I think that's absolutely one of the tools that we can start using in in 911 to alleviate some of the omega alpha style calls that we run on continuously. Yeah, I mean, we're such a resource rich country, you know, and technology has really brought down the cost to access those resources. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a great example of that is, is figuring out how to put information in people's hands and doing it quickly and doing it, you know, cost effectively. Because, I mean, it's certainly, especially if the hospital was the one sponsoring that feature, they're, they're saving money compared to that three-year-old coming in and tying up a doctor, especially if those folks don't have health insurance or have, you know, not great health insurance. Yeah. I mean, they're going to write that stuff off all day long. So, yeah, that's a great example. Or they're going to pay their bills like you know, other people and have, you know, a three, four, five thousand dollar $5,000 bill for basically a Tylenol and a few hours in the ER. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, then you mentioned as well about being in pre-med. I, much, much later in my life, when I was actually a firefighter, I got all my prereqs to go to PA school in UF here. And then again, had that realization that I don't want to be in <laughs> a hospital or, you know, a doctor's office. So I still had a degree. It was my, my ex-phys degree. So I just took away that and that was it. But um, when I was young, I'd wanted to be a doctor. And then realized ultimately it was a paramedic that I wanted to become because I didn't want to be behind a desk. I wanted to be out on the streets. So tell me about that that shift. You had that that kind of desire to, to initially be wearing a white coat with a stethoscope around your neck. What what changed? What were the elements of the fire service that pulled you away from that initial um, you know, drive that had got you all the way to pre-med? Right. So I think part of it is the conversations I was able to have with actual doctors, right? Where you um, I was romanticizing a little bit, I think, of what that was. And then when you start talking with them and then you start having more mature conversations about, you know, how does this affect your ability to be a father and, and a husband? And their answers aren't great, which I'm not saying the fire service is the answer to that either, unfortunately. But at the time, it, you know, going to school for another eight years because I wanted to work with pediatrics, it, I found that I could have access to people right now. Um, and with just a little bit of training, I could start offering them solutions and then the variety of, I mean, and the adrenaline and all, I'm, I mean, I'm an adventure junkie, so it just fit naturally. I think the biggest thing, though, was the fire service. I got a chance to, to work with the team, and I felt like as a doctor, I was going to be working more independently. Uh, and when I weighed that, I just valued the interaction with people as coworkers more than making more money financially, but, but really being kind of just an independent contractor almost at a large establishment. So I think that that's probably what did it. Um, 
which I'm, I'm fortunate because I mean, you know, I met my wife right after I moved to Richmond. So it's crazy to think about all the decisions you make and, and the ramifications of that. And uh, she wanted to work with elephants. So she jokes about what if she'd gone to Africa to, to do that. And, you know, it, I don't know, it's funny. I mean, I've wanted to be an architect, a veterinarian. I mean, I probably wanted to be a little bit of everything. Um, but I think with the days off and just with the, I mean, the various aspects, whether it's been teaching in schools or whether it's been working part-time in a hospital, there's just so many different things I can do with this career uh, that still revolve around the fire service and sometimes not at all that I could not have done if I was working in an ER full-time or even a pediatrician's office. Yeah, I think that's an undervalued element of our job too is how how versatile we are after we transition out of the fire service, whether it's you know a 30-year career or whether it's you know five years. But And I think the military struggle too. No, we're not going to be putting out fires probably in the the civilian world but the skills that we're asked to use the problem solving that we develop i mean is so so important and and i think the mission as well of continuing to do good like you don't have to wear a uniform to continue to to help people you just have to find it what that looks like in the next chapter yeah I, i think um you know maybe it's the fact that the fire service exposes you to adversity Right, your own and and others, because I think so much of the important learning happens in those moments. How you observe people responding to theirs when they're going through it, the opportunities you then have to help them through it, and what you learn about yourself and growing your empathy in that capacity, uh, as well as you know when it's your turn in the barrel. You know, what do you learn about yourself? Um, And I think the self discovery that can happen. I think I feel like if you know if I had a job as a banker, I don't feel like I would have those same opportunities. So. Whether it's just a variety of what we do or whether it's the fact that it's, it's very meaningful, it's very impactful, it's very, you know, at the point of, of problems in society. Like, I think there's little things that add value to it and you arrive at this, like, how could you not want to be in the fire service? With all the opportunities that it offers for you to help others and yourself, I would say, it's amazing the kind of career you can have. And like you said, the experience you can take away and the value you can have if you want to do a second career after the, the fire service. Yeah, absolutely. And that's my thing is, you know, with with the lens that I've been given now these last few years is just realizing that we can create an environment where our men and women are healthier, are fitter, are stronger, are mentally more resilient, you know, and therefore get to enjoy that that retirement. And sadly, our retirement stats are pretty shit. So, you know, so, yeah, I, I think we can make the the profession even better than it is now and and the jobs that we have the, the run the, excuse me the calls that we run are phenomenal but it's just making us the best version of ourselves and fostering longevity so that after you've sacrificed and your family has sacrificed that they're able to enjoy the fruits of their labor too yeah absolutely yeah all right well then um what I'm I'm intrigued as well. You you had a background in football and in rugby. So tell me about your journey into the fire service, and then what? How was the bar set physically um, for you on that particular journey? So uh, I got hired, um, you know, in the paid status. I think it was like 2006 that I got hired there. Um, I started in the early 2000s, and uh, I had great physical conditioning, so that was never a problem. Um, and if I, I always joked that, you know, if you if you had to be big or you, or you had to be dumb, you, you wanted to be big. Um, and so I always had the mindset that I may not have the answer, but I wanted people to be able to trust that if I was given a task, I could execute that, whether that was a mayday and go get somebody or stretching a hose or throwing a ladder. Like I wanted to have the physical subset to be able to do that. So, um, 
I mean, that was probably the first four years. And I'm a type A go-getter. Um, I'm not afraid to speak my mind some, a lot of times to my own detriment. And that's been something I've had to learn a lot through that emotional intelligence piece. Um, so I, I wanted to do a good job and I was all in, like all in. If there was training in the area, I was going. If there was training within driving distance, I was going. Um, so I felt like I developed a really strong competency and the fire ground skills, but I did that at the expense of spending time with people. And so if I was always watching, you know, YouTube videos on firefighting or always going to conferences and I wasn't spending time with my coworkers, you know, even off duty, drinking a beer or having a meal or spending time with families. So I didn't grow the people side of my job. And that, like when I became a formal supervisor, like that showed. And I started running into problems where I didn't have the relationships with people to then leverage, to give them the information they needed to hear where they saw me as credible. They saw the information as important and I was able to do it in a way which it wasn't threatening to them and they were able to, to act on it. So, um, you know, I, I joke, I spent the first half of my career learning to be a really, really good firefighter. And then I'm spending the this back half of my year just really trying to understand how to be a better leader and, and recognizing what people need in leadership, which uh, I think we do a terrible job overall in the fire service of preparing people. And I won't even say preparing people for leadership, but it's just like, if I could narrow it down, um, when you become that leader, you're going to be given a claim and you're going to be given criticism. And I don't think we prepare people to receive either. I, I see egos and I see bravado that's a result of the acclaim. Um, and I also see a lack of self-awareness. I see people that have drastically overestimated their abilities because they've never actually been challenged and they're just sitting around posturizing, thinking about what they would do. But at the same time, the criticism, I think, is probably more common. And uh, when you talk about resiliency, especially like mental health, I mean, it doesn't have to be somebody in your face beating you up, tearing you down. A lot of times that's happening already here. And you don't have the tools to, to you know, survive that. So I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges we have. And that's the stuff that I'm really interested in addressing is kind of exploring that, you know, how do we prepare people emotionally um, and mentally for these things, not just physically. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And it's one I've talked about with the the fitness element, but not so much with the communication element. So it's, you can open my eyes on that a little bit. But one, one of my pet peeves is, you know, you, you get these guys that are beating their chest and you know, duck walking with a with a with a hose line and doing the little spinny nozzle technique and high fiving each other, and it's like, but yeah, but dude, you wouldn't be able to make it up ten flights of stairs. Like you, your your waist strap's barely even hanging on for dear life. And I don't mean that to be a dick. It just is what it is. So there is a an acute myopic focus on skills. Look at me, force yeah. this door prop, not real door. Yeah. <laughs> look at me. Oh, yeah. Look at me. You yeah. know, snake this hose line across a wide open you know apparatus bay. All great, great things to do. But if you're not taking into account strength and conditions, can you do that 10 minutes into a fire? You know, like you said, or can you actually shut the hell up and do that when you're asked to versus freelancing or do it so mindlessly that you're ignoring the conditions around you and you pull your partner into conditions that you should never be in the first place? So that's a very, very interesting perspective. Yeah, and it's amazing the amount of grace that we offer our coworkers because we all know the folks that you know are operating on a 350-pound frame, and you know that that that's the weakest link. You know, no matter how much they know, that's the weakest link. Um, and yet we tolerate it. You know, I'm, and I'm not saying we need to apply peer pressure where you walk around calling them fatty, but you know, if you change what you cook at the firehouse, then at least they're getting some nutritional value. If you guys insist on working out as a team 
and they have to do something, some variation of what you're doing to their status. Or if the department as a whole says, you know what, you're not fit for duty. Not, like we're pulling you and we're going to put you on a 40 hour work week and you're going to lose this weight or you're going to we're going to love you right out the door to another job because we don't want to allow you to get yourself in a situation which then creates a situation for our other firefighters to have to go into. Um, so, I mean, we have a no tobacco policy. Right? So our our department has decided that that is valuable. That is important. We're not going to let folks do that to themselves. So, I mean, do you need an obesity policy? Like, I mean, is there a weight limit? You know, I mean, and I don't have the answers to that, but it's all little interesting things I think about. So, you know, what you're talking about with that myopic focus, I think a lot of times it's easy. Um, one, it's the sexy stuff, right? The stretching uh, hose, throwing ladders, forcing doors. But two, there's a competency piece where it's very easy for me to see whether you did it or not um, or for others to see that I did it or not. When it comes to that self-awareness piece, uh, there's the chance for feedback is so few and far between because a lot of leaders are not equipped to really give you that information in a way that you'll receive it um, or even think that it's their job to do it. And so you go about thinking and, and a conversation is a perfect example. Like if you've got a crisis going on at home and I have a conversation with you, I would love to know that something I offered to you helped or that it got better, whether it was something I did or not. But the feedback back from the employee may not provide that or they may listen to me, say, thank you so much. That's great. And then go and do something completely different. And that's like a door that you'll never know whether it's actually open or not. You know, it's like it's forced, but you've never actually seen it swivel on the hinge to know that it can be opened. Um, and so because you don't get that feedback and because it's this, you know, even though it's the larger part of your job, it's not the sexy stuff, then that's not where the attention is given nor the training provided. Yeah. Yeah, when you you talked about the um, the tobacco policy, and I think sadly, I don't think that's coming from uh, you know an altruistic part. I think it's because there's a heart and lung bill. They basically are checking boxes like, well, you can't smoke then. You know, I don't think it's about you know the the performance of the firefighter. And I think that's the that's the hard thing to navigate because I'm totally against the whole kind of you know fat shaming from from a from a nasty place but at the same time we've got to draw the bloody line in the sand there's no fat navy seals or green berets or pjs or you know ford air, air controllers or any of these elite operators in the other space there's no fat lifeguards on you know the hawaiian beaches you know what i mean these people these men and women can all do their job at the highest level they have annual fitness standards they take their fitness seriously I don't understand how police and fire, we got away from that. And I know partly, sadly, there's some self-serving unions behind it. There's some, you know, um, selfish administrations behind it. And there's a lack of ownership because there are many responders out there that are in phenomenal shape despite where they work. And some because, some are in great departments. But yeah, I mean, the fact that we dance around that subject instead of saying, look, you've got two options. You're out of condition right now. We are going to help you get back to where you need to be. That needs to be step one. The only ones that we need to let go are the ones that don't want to put in the work. And, you know, clearly they have no business being in this profession. But as I say a lot, how would you feel if your family died because the responder hadn't trained? It's that fucking simple. If your so-called rescuer for your child gassed out on the fifth floor of your 10-story apartment building and your children burned to death, how the fuck would you feel about that? Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, it's like the guys from Fit to Fight Fire, Tom and John say, you know, would you want you rescuing you? And I, I, I don't think there's a lot of folks that would want to answer that question. I think that's a hard look. But I think they play the odds. 
right? We focus on the things that provide us pain, you know, or discomfort. Like that's the stuff we attend to and we try to fix. So if they're not being challenged on the drill ground where their performance is not meeting the standard because they can't, because they're out of shape or they're not requiring workouts at the station and those folks aren't having to go through that and feel how miserable they feel, then they're not going to change. Like you have to feel the need to change. It's not going to come from somebody telling you. Um, and so we're uncomfortable writing feedback and because we can't provide great feedback, it makes it hard for organizations to enforce that standard. And unfortunately, a lot of the leaders that would have to enforce it are they themselves the people we're talking about. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know the ultimate solution to it, but I definitely recognize it's a problem. Well, totally. Just a, a random question, but there's a reason behind it. What's, what's one of the calls that you were most scared on that, that really tested you? Mm, let me think about that for a second. Hmm. So I don't, I don't really think I've got a, a, a call um, where I was, I was truly scared. Um, I mean, I've been in an accident responding to a call, and that shook me up pretty good. Um, and I've been planning fires and shootings and stuff. I was like, I've run those types of calls, but like, I trust my training in that. Um, I think the moments that have scared me the most have been back at the firehouse and, and recognizing that there's a person in crisis and not being able to do anything about it. I think, uh, and watching them go home the next day. I think that's the stuff that has really scared me more than, than anything, if that makes sense. No, it does. And the reason why I ask is, is this, like I, there's a few, a few I can think of that were definitely pucker factor. One actually wasn't even that acute. We just had this bizarre building layout and I felt like I was lost on the second floor and I was with my crew and there was a hose line there. It was just one of those, you know, kind of meltdown moments for a second. Um, but what, the reason I say that is obviously there's some people on here who have been in very, very terrifying situation. Nathan Espinosa, who is the LAFD guy that was on a roof collapse and ended up inside a burning building and managed to crawl his way back up on the roof. Um, the way that we function and probably the reason why we haven't got as many stories is the more you put yourself in uncomfortable situations, the more you periodically put yourself through really nasty workouts, the more you add stress to training environments, the the higher that baseline is. Because, yeah. I mean, I've only been doing this for 14 years, you know, before I transitioned to doing this full time. And, you know, was on all kinds of fires and everything, but found myself more in the flow state. Was very lucky. Nothing went catastrophically wrong. But, um, but I think that's because I constantly, like you, did training, worked out, and kept that, you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable philosophy behind everything I did, whether it was working out in gear in Florida summers, you know, whatever it was. But I think that's another element of the strength and conditioning that's lost is that we constantly have to be really fucking uncomfortable because that's what this job entails when things go go wrong. And if you're hiding in a lazy boy, then mentally you're becoming weaker and weaker and weaker. Oh, yeah. And, and every every day, because we're asked to do so much, there's no way you could train on or sharpen the edge of everything that's in your toolbox. So every day inherently dust is building up from the last time you used that skill. And you have to hope that in the moment, you know, especially in a moment of crisis, that you're able to, to recall that. And so many folks can't. Um, and the brain is limited in its ability to do that. So I always tell people, you know, think about the first time you got behind the wheel of a car, how nervous you were. And, you know, you had your 10 and 2 steering and you checked your mirrors and your side mirrors and your seat position. And the radio was probably off or down low. And, you know, you were looking constantly all, I mean, you were just petrified. And then fast forward 15 years and you're driving down the interstate at 90 miles an hour, 
hopefully wearing your seatbelt, probably eating a Big Mac with one hand, driving with the, your knee on the steering wheel because your other hand's messing around with, with either your phone or the steering wheel, not paying any attention. And it's like, it's like effortless. And I, I hesitate to call it flow, but what that is, is just the repetition it has ingrained itself so much that your brain has been able to do what's called chunking. It takes like a list of 10 steps that you would have to memorize otherwise, and it condenses it down and it puts it in a part of the brain that has recall like this. So you, you are unconsciously remembering things. And that's what you would want, right? For the moments of crisis, we revert to our you know, basic level of training. Like that's what you, you want. Because if you, it's not comfortable, like the language you're using, you haven't had the repetition to do it, then it is an active recall. And when you're actively recalling something, your brain is literally shutting off for a moment. It's like a, it's like a guy's in your head and he's got to turn around away from your eyes to access a file cabinet and he's got a rifle to the file cabinet and go, oh, this looks like this scenario. But for that split second, you are not processing the information that you're getting. Um, and I'll, even though we're talking tenths of a second, like when that adds up, that's where people get in trouble. And that's why they shut down and make poor decisions when you're like, well, I don't understand why they're doing that. That's exactly why. So yeah, I mean, before we even get into the idea of heart rate variability, where you know, you've got the ability to maintain that cognitive function at a higher heart rate because you're in shape. Um, just, I mean, I tell people to do burpees because it makes you smarter when shit goes wrong. And like, that's everything that I've researched and that, and that is what it does. Uh, so if, yeah, of course, train, 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 and train. And then, like I said, you know, I, I love failing, love failing. You shouldn't fail the fundamentals, right? But if we can design scenarios where you're failing, not where you are always going to fail, but like we're being creative and we just want to try something, it's learning. Uh, and then learn as much as you can and then share what you've learned from it. Like update every, we call about, like we talk about it being a slide tray, right? Where you're, you're looking to make a decision and you're processing all the little slides in your slate, trying to figure out which one of those things is. We want to update those constantly. You don't want to throw the old ones out because I think the basics are important, whether it's people or fire ground, but you always want to be just like technology advancing and making sure people are aware of what could hurt them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you just said there. Yeah, well, you know, it's another kind of um, parallel is jujitsu. So I've just started back in a new school now. Um, the one I went to before uh, w was a great school, but it was a lot of lower belts. And there was a lot of people trying to win the role, trying to get the tap. Um, now where I am is a lot of much, much more um, densely populated higher belts so there's a lot more flow and there's a lot more encouragement to just be creative because if you get tapped you get tapped you're in training this isn't right you know fight for your life as a whole different dynamic right. but that reminds me of the fire ground like just like you said you it might go it might go well you might you know do all the scenarios find the dummy first time beautiful but i think you learn so much more from a failure and your confidence can definitely be dashed if you keep failing, keep failing. So there needs to be an inbuilt success. But if you're scared to fail on the fire ground because you quote unquote don't want to look stupid, then again, you really need to rethink that philosophy. You want to fail over and over and over again and redo those scenarios and learn and improve. Then God forbid something happens in the real world. That's your lowest level that you're going to fall to now. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, and I think going with that, it, the more training you can do to create the failure in that space where it's you know safer to fail, then do that. Because I've never run a perfect fire. I've never had a perfect fire. I don't know if you had. I've never had a perfect shooting, stabbing. I was never amazed. Had a perfect cardiac arrest. It's never. And so it's like, well, how 
why are we successful if it can't be perfect? Like if lives are hanging in the balance, how in the world do we accomplish the mission if we can't expect people to be perfect? Well, I can tell you it's a collective brain trust. It's the fact that we have two or three or four men or women showing up and we overlap each other's you know, weaknesses with strengths. And in the moment, I may not have the exact information of the decision, but somebody else can lead in that moment. Um, and so that's where, you know, that's where leadership starts is ability to follow where, you know, you have people stepping in and out of roles based on the situation, based on their experience and their skill set. And and that's perfect. Um, I think about one of the first EMS calls I ran. And um, this one really sticks with me because it was really, really terrible. But uh, in a college town, there was a, a young woman who had been picked up, raped and thrown in the street naked. Um now, I, I think that I have a, a wonderful bedside manner. It's something that is very important to me is, is to, to be very empathetic. However, sending in the six foot four, 260 pound man to start helping this woman doesn't make as much sense when I have two coworkers who are even more trained than I am and they happen to be women. Um, and so, you know, that's just one example of like, it's, it's not one person that we're sending to fix these problems. And the more you train together and the more you can start eliminating each other's weaknesses and learning where those are and when you want to step up and when you should yield, uh, I mean, that's when your fire grounds get better. And that's why we're successful on those fire grounds. When things are going wrong is, you know, probably 10 or 20 percent of the folks there really have a clue of what's happening. And then everybody else is just being told what to do. And then, you know, that last 10 percent is trying not to get caught because they don't know what to do. Um so I'd rather be in that 10 or 20%. Like that's the influence I would want to have on our success. Yeah. Well, I think humility is very important too because I might, I can think of a thousand fires and, and calls that I've been on when you're talking about. But one of the big ones I would do as a medic, as a lead medic in that call, would be like, all right, we've done A, B, C, D, and E. Help me out. You know, wh- Am I missing anything? Do you seeing anything? Because again, I'm not super medic. I'm actually a relatively inexperienced medic compared to how long I was an EMT. And, you know... It, even, even, you know, you go into a fire and you're so focused on the task at hand and your partner taps you on the back and says, Hey, look above you. You're like, Oh shit. There's whatever danger that you would have just walked right underneath. So I think yeah. humility is important. And I don't think you can be a team member without humility. Yeah. Well, I mean, we joke in our department that BLS saves lives because they're the ones who notice what the ALS providers have failed to because they've tunneled in and they're so focused on something. Um, but I, I mean, I think that's, you know, the fire ground, that's the firehouse. I mean, that, that is like, you know, the folks that are expected to have the knowledge that are engaged are the ones that are going to probably miss the stuff as it changes. So having the, you know, surrounding folks to help with that definitely, I, I think definitely makes it better. Um, part of it that's interesting is the, the feedback idea, right? So like what you started talking about is, um, I want people to be comfortable challenging me and offering me feedback or pointing out things that I'm missing. And so many people think that they've created uh, a leadership presence that allows that, you know, hey, tell me what I did wrong there. And nobody wants to step up or say anything because you yell at them, you know, or you won't yell at them in the moment, but you'll hold it against them later, you know, and nobody wants to risk anything for you. And I think that's just, that's a shame, but I also think it's terrifying to think that you could be a leader, that people are scared to help you. They're scared for themselves to help you. And you did that. Like you created that that atmosphere to do it. So you know the teams uh, that have done this successfully. The leaders where the the firefighters will joke with the leaders and the leaders can joke with them. And it it feels um, it's much more personal 
as, as much as it is professional because humility is present there and ego is not getting in the way. It's not acting as an insulation to receiving that feedback. And because it's received well, you then as a leader can turn around and give it and hope that it's received you know, equally as well. And that speaks to the quality of the relationship between the leader and the follower, which we neglect a lot because we're not focused on the right things. Um, we focus on processes, hoping the processes will take care of people, but we abandon our duty as a leader to take care of people directly. Um, and we hide behind desks and we say we're too busy to go see people. And um, we use emails and text messages instead of phone calls or taking somebody to lunch or breakfast. We get busy and ahead of ourselves and we forget that people were always the reason we got in the fire service, whether they were you know, the community or whether they were the people we worked with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know you wrote an article on higher education and leadership in the fire service. So I'd love to kind of get your perspective on that and then kind of use that as a path to talk about emotional intelligence. Yeah, absolutely. So the, so here, <laughs> education, it's interesting. And I, and I put it in the article, right? Like, especially come promotion time, that's when people start to really antagonize um, people who have degrees. But at the same time, you can't, if you were to ask me like, is education important? I'd say, sure. And if you're asking me to say, is trade skills important? I, I would say, sure. Um, as is being a good human being or being able to listen. There's, there's no one aspect that I think overwhelms any other one. There's no one that's more important. Obviously, you can't be a leader if you don't know what you're doing. So competency is in there. But um, for me, after doing the pre-med, I, I did a fire science degree. Uh, and that helped. Like That helped me understand. I had a building construction class. I had a water supply class. It, you know, it gave me information that I, I didn't necessarily know or Maybe it was even wrong as it was being taught to me in my department. Um, and then after that, I was like, all right, well, you know, let's enjoy being a firefighter. So I took a couple of years off and then I became an officer. And I said, I really want to learn more about the business side of the organization because there's lots of things that I wanted to do. I thought were great ideas. And I was always told no. And, you know, it was either fiscally not possible or politically not possible, whatever the reason was. So I got a master's in public administration. Uh, and then through some interpersonal challenges, I realized that I sucked with people as, as extroverted as I was. And as much as I enjoyed talking with people, I just, I just wasn't good in those moments. Uh, and I could be better. So, uh, trying to learn from that and putting together the intoxicated leadership presentation led me into that working on the PhD in industrial psychology, which all that is, is basically, you know, the workforce it's engagement, attitude, change management. Um, why do people do what they do at work? You know, and it's more like consulting, like what could you do to get a better response out of your folks and understanding that people aren't robots and, and all the little nuances of neuroscience and all that stuff. So that's like a treasure chest of stuff. And it's all stuff you'd know. Like, I, I'm not going to blow your mind by anything because um, you've seen it and you know it. It's a gut reaction. But I can explain the science of why it's happening or I can apply it to other things where it makes a little bit more sense. So I feel like those degrees cumulatively, you know, they made me better in the fire ground. They made me better as an administrator, but one makes me a better leader. It's just, it's just stacking value for me. Um, and I find these things relevant in the fire service, but it certainly allows me to have some options later on. But I think the worst thing you can do is, is not learn anything. I don't, think you, I don't think you should have to have a master's degree to be a fire chief. But you better, I mean, you better know what you're doing if you want to be a fire chief. If you're not aware of the, the political and financial sides and you can't put together a budget, then maybe you ought to take that class. Um, and so I think it's about like, what do you want to do? Where are you a good fit? 
and then taking and learning in areas that support development in that. Um, and I'm always, I'm always chasing weaknesses, but I mean, this is something I've really felt recently over like the last two years. There comes a point where I'm not getting the return that I want on spending time trying to improve those weaknesses. Um, and, you know, just using my career as an example, like I don't, I have a very basic level understanding of fire investigation. I have zero interest in being a fire investigator or fire marshal. Would it make me better at my job, you know, as part of the command team, if I had a better understanding? Yeah, I, I would. But do I want an assignment in the FMO's office? Nope. Nope. So am I going to be trying to take a class in that? Mm, probably not. Not if a class comes up in something that I'm currently doing, which is a safety officer position. So I'd much rather take a health and wellness class right now than something that could benefit me elsewhere. So anyway, I think it's, it's about finding where your fit is and then taking information in, whether it's formally through education or informally through the firehouse table or an administrative transfer where you get out of operations and go see a different side of your organization. The point is grow. That's the point is have a growth mindset and, and don't diminish, don't diminish anything that people have because it's all at the end of the day valuable, whether it's education or whether it's trade experience or whether it's being a mom or dad or being an older brother and all the life experience you have, all of those things matter. I don't think anything is better, you know, than, than any of the others. Yeah. Well, just as a a sec, uh, tangent for a second, I had a guy who's a Vietnam vet delta operator um and when he transitioned now he actually went into the the college there community college and started putting together um a degree program for transitioning vets from special operations and that he was able to include a lot of their you know high level training classes they had to take into their college credits because one of the frustrations i've had personally in higher education in our profession is all the things that actually are going to make us good at our job, whether it's the spec ops stuff and rope, you know, rope rescue and, and, um, VMR, or whether it's more the EMS stuff, but basically nothing applies to a degree. So you have to then go to the admin. And I think that's kind of BS. It, it turned me <laughs> off wanting to go that route because if I'm going to sit in a classroom for you know, X amount of hours a week, I want to learn something that's going to make me directly better at my job. And yeah. then if I want to go into emergency operations management or something, well, that's a whole separate thing, but. What, yeah. What's your take on that? Like us changing a degree that actually creates a much more solid through line within the profession of op on the operations side for those that don't want to go on the management side. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, um, you know, we talked about earlier about the education about, you know, I want to, I want to focus on skill sets as much as I do knowledge sets and what you're describing. Absolutely. Um, I think, uh, I think there, I have seen universities that are starting to take, uh, those types of things and actually award credit for that. Um, but that's a, that's a system process problem that we're not going to have much success with, but recognizing, and it goes back to this fit piece. Like I cannot implore you enough to do not promote or do not move to positions that are not in your wheelhouses that you do not expect to grow, to be able to do. I'm not telling you don't take on challenges, but if you put yourself in a situation in which you're never going to get any better at, and you're not going to be supported in those you're going to be miserable and the people around you are going to be miserable. The people who work for you, work above you, everyone's going to be miserable. So knowing yourself is probably the first thing you could do in an education. Um, and I think going back to the article, the, the biggest thing is uh, do something. So it's always funny to me to, to hear people complain about, oh, that guy got promoted because he has a degree. And I look at him like, hey, man, like you could have that too, but you watch eight hours of TV a day. So like, and you barely train. So don't, 
maybe he he got promoted because of the decree, but don't tear him down because you're doing absolutely nothing to further your cause. Um, and then as an organization, I wouldn't want us to promote people with just degrees. I think w- that would be a terrible organization. I think finding people and developing them strengths and getting them in good fits, no matter what rank that is, is going to be way more rewarding overall for, for the people and the organization. Yeah. Well, so conversely, what I also see is you have great leaders that fit the criteria. They go to school, get whatever piece of paper they need that the department requires, and they become great leaders with a bachelor's, with a, you know, whatever. But then you have really shitty leaders that go to school, seem to have all the degrees, all the letters after their name, and still have no idea how to manage, how to stay in shape themselves, how to, you know, any of that stuff. So with the emotional intelligence piece, Talk to me about you know the 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 human side of the you know, the the I guess I guess the career ladder for lack of a better word. Yeah, so I'll I will tell you uh, where my journey with that started because um, I don't think I've ever shared this with you, and I share it in the class, so maybe redundant people have come there. But um, I got promoted fairly young in my career. Um, actually, when I was volunteering, I, I became a frontline supervisor at year two. Not because I was qualified, only because I'd been there the long, one of the longest tenures, because it was just a revolving door of folks. So I, I don't think, looking back, I don't think I was any good at all. So I told myself I'd take a little bit longer, and I ended up taking seven years you know, when I came on the paid side. But I still think that was too early when I look back on it. Um, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But I, you know, I think I could have benefited from a couple more years. And it wasn't because I... It, that would make me a better firefighter. It was because I just needed to mature in my viewpoints and perspectives. And here's how it played out. So I get promoted and I get sent to the bad news bears, right? I get sent where, you know, they're, they're saying that strong leadership is needed. And it's a classic scenario that you would get in a promotional assessment where, you know, my senior firefighter is the person I got promoted over, right? So, and he's got more tenure on, and I'd fully admit he is a better firefighter. He's a better firefighter. He's now a better command. Like he's better at this job than I am. He's got strengths that I don't have. Um, and I was able to go in there and recognize that this guy was just tired of being ignored and he wanted to be valued and he had a lot to give. And so I just relentlessly worked at creating opportunities for him to thrive. And because he thrived and he was so good at what he did, everybody else thrived around him. So for like, I don't know, six months, life was great. It was good. Like, it was really, really good. Um, and then, you know, he got promoted. Surprise. He's doing a great job. He gets promoted. So then he sends me another guy that's in the promotional process. And three months later, he gets promoted. So now everyone's like, well, what's the secret sauce of this assignment that Ben's in? Um, and I was hoping they would send me another guy. But the next one, they thought, uh, all right, well, if Ben's doing such a good job leading over there. Let's send him a shit show. And so <laughs> the, the, the next one that came in was... Um, you know, from an assignment that the supervisors were told, Hey, we need to send a body, you know, to Ben's place. You can send one of two people. One's a rock star. He's in the promotional process. And one is this other guy who I call George. Uh, so which one do you think the supervisor sent? Of course they kept the rock star and they sent George. So George comes in and he's been riding a ladder truck for the last 10 of his, I think he'd been on like 12 or 13 years. And I have an engine and an ambulance, no ladder truck. So it's not his strength. It's not you know where he's great at. And he's also going through a divorce. And it's nasty. So this move antagonizes his ability to put his kids on and off the bus. And 
you know, his, his ex-wife is using it against him. Like, it's just, it's such a terrible fit. And I raised the, the concerns, the surface level concerns, like the things I just told you. And it was amazing how fast they were dismissed. And they were dismissed by the leadership above the supervisors because they wanted to keep the rock star. And, you know, they start, they were having problems with George and they just didn't want to invest the energy. So, you know, that's distressing for me to, to know that that happened and it still happens, unfortunately. It, we've not fixed that issue. So George comes in and I'm like, yep, I'm going to be empathetic. I think uh, Ayla was maybe one or two at the time, she, the only child we had. And I was like, yep, we're I'm, I got this guy. I'm going to take care of him. So I had a great first day of like, hey, I know you didn't want to come here. Uh, I'm going to do everything I can to help. I know you've got a situation going at home. Let me know what you need. Like, you know, we can arrange trade time so you can try to get those kids on and off the bus. If you need to duck out of training to talk with your lawyer on the phone, that's cool, man. Like, let me know what you need. I, I got you. Like, we're going to make this work. I'm glad you're here. And I don't know, two, three months, this goes on. It's okay. Uh, or so I thought, right? It, it didn't take long and he, he wasn't happy. What, what kept him in check was the guy um, that ended up, the second firefighter worked with that ended up getting promoted. He was complaining to him quite a bit. And that, that senior firefighter was buffering George's. But when he got promoted, Another guy got transferred in that was in the promotional process, but was really just, unfortunately, he was a hot mess himself. And he loved, he was that firehouse lawyer, man. He loved conflict. And he saw an opportunity with George and me, and he milked that thing for everything he could. So he put fuel on that fire, whatever he could. And I noticed that my relationship with George turned sour. Um, and then I started getting feedback to just how sour it was. Um, and it culminated in just basically me losing control of the shift the, you know, those two took it away from me. And, uh, I had a couple of junior members that they, like some of them started calling out sick because there was just so much freaking tension in the firehouse that they didn't enjoy it. So looking back, it's like, all right, well, you know, what, what could you have done differently? Because the things that started happening were, you know, George stopped wearing his uniform. He stopped doing the checks. He started doing his part-time job while he was on duty and I would tell him things and he wouldn't do them. And then I would correct him on it and he would act indignant. Um, so, I mean, there's inattention to duty, there's insubordination and he's doing it in front of other leaders. He just, it's a shit show. And, you know, looking back, this, this guy's in hell. Yeah, I think, you know, he, I think he's in hell. And here I am saying, I know you're in hell, but I still need a hundred percent out of you. And it's like, how foolish a statement is that? And how unrealistic is that? Um, and I missed that. So instead of yielding, I pressed, I pressed forward. I did everything the agency asked me to do. Uh, we did learning plans, you know, it got to a point where, you know, if it progressed any further, he's probably going to be fired. And at the same time, all of this bullshit's happening and I'm getting run into the ground. The captain, the position that supervises me changes and I lose a phenomenal captain and I gain a new captain. And this guy is rife with conflict avoidance. I mean, he just nice, super nice guy. Right. And you probably know what I mean by that when I say that about the fire service, like not a great firefighter, but super nice guy. And, um, but he had worked with George before. So he takes George's side on stuff. George starts calling him every day. He's off to complain about me. This goes on for four months and I don't even know what's happening. I don't know what's happening until, um, the captain tries to give me some counseling about how to approach George. And it comes out that, Hey man, I've been talking with him every day. And so I told him, look, you know, why don't you, why don't you bring us in a room? Let's get it all on the table and then we can move along because I'm really getting tired of this and I don't feel like I'm being unreasonable. So whatever we can do to get this worked out. 
So he does. He, he comes in. We'll call him Chris. So Chris is the captain. He brings us together. And he, we're in a closed door room. And he's like, George, you know, tell Ben what you don't like about him. I'm like, what a terrible way to open a meeting. <laughs> so, and good God, right? George does. Holy cow. I mean, just unload. And anything and everything. I mean, if it was like your left eye is a little millimeter higher than the other right eye, like that makes me angry. Like that's the kind of stuff that was coming out. Um, and the statements that were made, you know, you can't make me train. If I don't want to work out, I'm not going to work out. You know, if I got to sell stuff because he was a real estate agent, if I got to sell real estate during the day, then there's nothing you're going to do about that. And he's saying that in front of Chris. So I'm like, beautiful, right? Because a lot of times when you have conflict, when you challenge somebody, they, they lie or they, you know, they yield and they're like, oh no, I never said that. Or I didn't mean that. Not George. George was like, yep, I said it. I meant it. Like, what you going to do about it? And so Chris, after hearing all of that, turns to me and he's like, all right, well, you know, Lieutenant Martin, tell George what you don't like about him. And I said, well, I, I'm not going to phrase it that way because that's not how I feel. I, I want him to want to be here and I want a relationship with him. However, I do think the performance is below the standard. And these are my areas of concern. They seem to be rooted in policy. So I don't feel like I'm asking you to do anything unreasonable. What can we do here to, to try to meet in the middle? Because uh, I'm not sure how to, you know, I'm not sure how to move from here because I feel like I'm standing at the point that you need to come to. I don't feel like I can go to you on these things. And Chris looks over and he's like, all right, well, I think that was pretty fruitful. Um, you know, George, kudos to you. It takes a lot of courage to tell your officer what you don't like about him. And he goes, uh, Ben, he's like, I'm proud of you because it takes a lot to admit when you're wrong. So um, <laughs> I, I, I consider this, you know, to be a mute point And uh, I look forward to what we do moving forward. So I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, George takes his hand out and I shake it. Uh, Chris gets up, looks at me and I'm, I'm like bewildered. I'm like, what just happened? So I, I sat in that room for like 20 minutes after they left and I was like, oh my God. So I called my battalion chief and I was like, Hey boss. Uh, all right. So this just happened. Right. And he's like, wow. Um, Ben, I'm going to be honest with you. You know that Chris, he's got uh, almost 20 years on. And I, I don't know him to be that type of individual. I don't believe he said those things. He's like, I think you misheard him. And I'm like, okay, well, I took notes and I did not, but um, I'm going to put a transfer request in um, unless you have some suggestions because I can't work. I can't work with either individual if that's what I've got. And he's like, all right, well, you know, I'll try to make it a point to come by uh, because he was pretty hands off. He, he barely ever showed up. Um, and I'll, I'll think about it. So didn't take long to start hearing my name in the rumor mills. And, you know, unfortunately, as a supervisor position, uh, fortunate for the situation, I don't take transfers. But George does for minimum staffing. So everywhere he works overtime or everywhere he went for a temporary transfer. So did that story. And I mean, it is rife for firefighter drama. I mean, think about a firefighter telling an officer, you can't make me do my job. And, the, and then that guy's boss being like, yeah, like a hype man in the background, like, yeah. And so he told that story, man. And that thing gained so much momentum. And uh, I called some folks that, you know, were friends or peers. And I was like, listen, this is what's happening. And I can't really talk about it because it's still a personnel matter. And I'm trying to respect that boundary. But I'm, so I'm dying here. You guys got any suggestions? And so I finally called my old captain and I tell him that. And he's like, no, man. He's like, you're so right on this. He goes, um, He's like, that guy shouldn't work here anymore. I mean, that's just unreal to think he said those things. So armed with that, I went back to Chris, my captain, and I was like, hey, man, you and I need to talk. So I wrote up on the board all the stuff that uh, Chris had said, 
And I was like, hey, I'm just going to go over each of these things. And I need you to you tell me where I'm wrong. Like, where is it that I can give? And by the second thing, the captain puts his head in his hands and he goes, oh, my God, what have I done? And then he opens up and then I find out about, you know, he's been calling him every day and basically placating George's concerns. And uh, he looks at me and this is like, oh, you want to talk about a scary moment in your career? He looks at me and he goes, what do we do about this? And I'm like, I don't know. You you're like, you tell me you get paid big bucks. You've got twice my career. Like you fix this. You're the one who messed this up. Like, I mean, I was so angry. Um, and he's like, I don't know what to do. I said, well, all right, well, let's do this. Let's start with the battalion chief. You call the battalion chief and tell him what you did. And to his credit, he, he did. And then the battalion chief came by a couple hours later and he's like, Ben, I owe you an apology. He's like, I, he's like, I missed it. I didn't, I didn't think that was case. He's like, but the captain owned it. And, um, he goes, Ben, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I said, me either, chief. I said, that seems to be a common theme around here. <laughs> um, and so we talked about it and we went to, to HR about it. And HR was like, oh, we're going to terminate him. And I'm like, well, so it's, it's the captain, myself and the HR lady. And she's like, yep, this guy's getting terminated. There's like, I mean, there's so many policy violations and you've tried and your documentation is solid. And, and I said, well, so here's the thing. Like he's got this stuff going on at home and he may have gotten some bad advice from a leader. And she's like, who? And I'm like, Captain, you want to weigh in on this one? So he tells the story and she closes the folder of all the documentation. And she looks at me and she goes, well, this is fucked. Like, <laughs> and I, said, uh, I said, yeah, it is. What do we, what do we do about this? So we sit down and um, like, cause I did not, I did not think it had, war- I mean, I think you could, you could sell the termination, but I felt like I'd already failed him. And I felt like my captain had failed him and firing him. I felt like would be the biggest failure of all. And I said, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go that route. I want to give him a chance to fix this. So she's like a learning plan is the way to do it. So we have to come up with all these objectives, right? All these remediation points, things he's got to do, which, you know, it reads like a recruit academy. Is I mean, it's basic, basic things. And um, I tell the battalion chief what we need to do. And he's like, all right, well, let's let's have a let's have a meeting about this. I'll come over and, and I'll do it. So I, I remember the morning. I think it was a Wednesday and I've got a class scheduled that day. I've got to leave the firehouse. I've got to go to a leadership class that the county's requiring me to take because I'm a new supervisor. And then four hours later around lunchtime, I'm going to come back. And the goal is battalion chief's going to come in. The captain's coming in off duty. We're going to grab George. We're going to talk to him around two o'clock. So about 9 a.m., my phone starts getting blown up by the battalion chief. And he's like, where are you? What are you doing? And uh, I was like, I'm in the leadership class. And he goes, oh, oh, okay. He's like, never mind. I'll handle this. And I'm like, do I? He's like, I got it. So he hangs up. So then, you know, 30 minutes later, the captain calls. He's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm in a leadership class. And he says, all right. He's like, George is calling me. He's like, I don't, I don't know. He's like, I don't know what to say to him. I'm like, well, when's the last time you talked with him? Oh, I don't think I've returned any of his phone calls for the last three weeks. I was like, good, good Lord, man. I'm like, so obviously George is suspecting something's going on. I'm like, no wonder why he went from talking with you every day where you were listening to him complain for 30 minutes to an hour. And now you won't return any of his phone calls. So yeah, that's a problem. Uh, I'm like, well, I'm in this class till 12. You know, I'll talk with you as soon as I get out and we'll figure this out. By 12 o'clock, time chief calls me and he's like, I don't care if that class is done. You're coming back to the firehouse. And I'm like, what is going on? So George had gotten wind that we were going to have the conversation. So he recruited that other guy that I was talking about that was a firehouse lawyer. 
And between the two of them, they had called anyone in the fire service where I work that they thought carried any kind of weight. And they sang this song, this woe is George song. And, you know, Ben's creating a hostile work environment. You know, George is just doing the best he can over there. and Ben's trying to fuck him. And, and, uh, and all of this is now coming back to the battalion chief because at this point, like assistant chiefs are calling the battalion chief and they're like, Hey man, what's going on in your battalion? Like, why is everything so messed up? And he's like, uh, you don't have the full story. I got this. So he comes in all riled up at one thirty, And so you can imagine now I've got a captain who's scared to have a conversation. I've got a battalion chief who is ready to rip someone's head off. And I'm stuck in between that and George. So George comes in, remarked unit out of service. And, uh, well, actually, let me back up. Before George comes in, Chief's like, in the office. So we go in the conference room, closes the door, and he starts chewing me, you know, up and down. He's like, I don't know how we've gotten here. He's like, this guy should have been fired. He's like, you know, you're trying to you're trying to do him a favor, and all he's doing is screwing us. And, and I just sat there, and I just took it. And then uh, and he goes, but, and this is a big but. He's like, it's not lost on me, Captain your behavior here. He goes, you have screwed your Lieutenant. He goes, I don't know how to fix this. I don't think it can be fixed. And he goes, I'm so disappointed in you. And like, I don't know if it was the way he said it, but you could tell in the body language that like the reality was really setting in for the captain of just how bad it had gotten. So when George walks in, good old George, right? Like he's not, he's not going to yield. No, he's walking into traffic. He sees the captain that's been ducking him for three weeks. He slaps him on the back in front of everybody and he goes, hey, man, way to have your brother's back. I thought better of you. And then goes to sit down. And whether it was the slap or whether it was on the because it was on the heels of what the battalion chief had already yelled at him about. Captain stood up and he's not a large man, but he stood up and he could, he might as well have been nine feet in that room because he was like, sit the fuck down. He's like, I'm so tired of your mouth and what you think you can do here. He goes. The reality of this situation is you're going to learn today. He's like, Ben has been trying to help you and you've been thwarting him every step of the way. And he's like, and I screwed him by not backing him up. But Ben is right. And you're going to sit here and you're going to listen to this. So shut up. And all the color drains out of his face. I mean, gone. And I was like, holy cow, this just got real. So there's four people in this room. I'm in charge, right? Like I'm supposed to be running this meeting. But what was supposed to be 30 minutes ended up being almost three and a half hours of just oh like i mean it's everything you you would think like it was, it was almost as if it was a jury you know had gone back and they were discussing you know vehemently where they disagreed about whether someone was guilty or not because i'd say something george would disagree and then the battalion chief would pull out the documentation and he questioned the captain on it the captain would back me up and it was, it's, just, it's just a circle there's like no accountability for any of this stuff and um at one point um the I, th- I forget what exactly the question was, but uh, I think it was like training, right? He's like, you know, you know, this. He's like, Ben's documented here that you told him that you're not going to train if he asked you to. He's like, did you say that? He goes, well, no, I, I didn't, I didn't say that. And he, and he goes, all right, well, the documentation says that the captain was in the room. Captain, did George say that? And there's this pause. And I'm like, oh, you chicken shit. I'm like, don't you, don't you bail on me now? And and. The battalion chief goes, Captain, I've asked you a direct question. I, I need an answer. And he and he looked, he can't even look at George. And, and he hangs his head and he goes, George did say that in front of me, in front of the lieutenant. And uh, and George's color just like drains out because he realizes that he's truly by himself in that meeting. 
And um, the next thing that comes out is, well, I hope you understand that it is Lieutenant Martin's prerogative to train you. If he wants to go out there at midnight and train you, which I don't, but if he wants to do that on a Sunday, he'll, you know, he'll do that. He'll do whatever he wants with you. And so George is now, you know, like nothing, nothing to lose at this point. So he starts arguing with the battalion chief. You can't tell me what to do with training. And I'm like, oh, my God, it just it just gets worse. So they get in a shouting match. And then George stands up and leaves. Gone. Gone. Just and I'm like, whoa, oh, all right. I, none of my role playing classes have taught me how to, what to do now. <laughs> the inbox training. So, yeah. So we go looking for him. I can't find him. And uh, eventually the captain finds him and he is uh, dry heaving into a toilet, like just emotionally just shut down, swollen eyes, snot rockets, um, no color in his face. And, you know, the George, George is getting coached by the captain and, and George is like, I can't go in there. I can't do any more of this. And the captain's like, you got to go in there. You got to take this medicine. And he's like, so we can get past this. And George is like, no, I can't. I can't do it. And he's like, listen, I'm like, you're coming with me. You've got to do it. And the battalion chief's standing in the hallway, like, let's go, gentlemen. Like, we're finishing this. And and this is like this is why leadership is is so important to me. And I'm so passionate about teaching it because this is the largest leadership moment I think I've ever had in my career. What comes next? George walks in the room. I recognize instantly that he's not there, that that's a that's a shell of a man. And the battalion chief starts resuming the conversation starts yelling at him again and instead of standing up for him and going chief a lot's been said today i i given what's happened i think we need to go ahead and suspend the rest of this um i want to give george a chance to go home and, and kind of collect himself and uh, i'd like as a leadership team to discuss um a strategy moving forward because i don't think this is meriting any fruit for us but i didn't say that i was thrilled that george was taking it on the chin because he had been beating the shit out of me for six, seven, eight months. And uh, I was just over it. I was angry. I was angry with George. And so, like, in my mind, this was all his consequence. He had created this mess. This was his to shoulder alone. And so I, I was an active participant in what, like, I think that was about another two hours at that point. Um, and he got obviously nothing out of it. Right. What happened the next day was he calls me. He's like, hey, man, you know, I know I signed the learning plan. He's like, I don't remember anything that was said about it. I don't really know what I signed. Honestly, I don't remember any of the back half of the meeting. And I was like, well, hol holy cow. Um, all right. Well, I took notes. I'll go over it with you. So he comes in and I'm going over it with him. And, and I'm like, this is what you told the battalion chief. You know, you can't make me train. He's like, oh, I never I never said that. And I was like, yeah, man. And I'm reading him the things he's saying. He's like, dude, I have no memory of saying these things. And he's like, I would never. I would never say those things. And I'm like, you've been saying these things to me for the last six, seven, eight months. Um, and you definitely said them that day. I'm like, and now the consequences of all that are shared by us because we've got to do this learning plan. The shift has got to help you with this learning plan. Like you are a huge time commitment for me. And I'm not telling him the time commitment part, but the reality is it's taking away from my working with junior members, which is hurting their development. Um, and we go through this plan. We get it done in, in three months. I get transferred because I've lost a shift. Like you can't even breathe in there. There's so much tension. You know, the young guys are kind of caught in the middle. They don't know what to think. Um, and I still can't talk about it. Like I can't talk about what went on in that room. So I'm dying. Like I'm depressed. I'm gaining weight. Um, I, I, I still want to help George, but George won't let me. Like I didn't have the relationship to, to do that with him. So I get transferred and, you know, firehouse lawyer shithead. He takes my new shift out to lunch. 
and tells him George's side of the story from George's angle and leaves out everything else. So then these guys are on edge because they don't trust me. They think I'm a company man. And, and uh, it was years for me to shake that. Years. So um, the, the reason I tell that story is because at the same time, I'm still taking leadership classes. And I do this, uh, I do a Myers-Briggs inventory, and then I do a uh, DISC assessment. And the, uh, the Myers is personality. The DISC assessment is kind of like your behaviors and how they're interpreted by others. And when she's giving me the feedback of this, she's like, has anybody ever accused you of being arrogant? And I'm like, uh, well, yeah. Actually, that's the same feedback I got in my um, interview panel, that I was a little bit arrogant. You know. And uh, did people find it hard to give you feedback? I'm like, no, 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 I don't think so. Do, do they? Well, what does that say? Like, you know, what? And so she reads this and it's like my list of insecurities. Like, I'm like, how in the world did this thing see all that? And so between that experience and being like, well, man, it would have been nice to have known this years ago that I, I was coming across this way because I wasn't aware. Uh, and then the experience with George, I just started reading. I started reading. I was doing some writing and I was, I was determined that nobody was ever going to have to go through this again. Because it wasn't fair to George, it wasn't fair to the organization, it wasn't fair to his coworkers, certainly it wasn't fair to me, but I did to the best of my ability based on how I was trained. And when I reached in that leadership toolbox, I came out with the wrong tool because there just wasn't the right one in there. And the emotional intelligence piece was really, for me, the tool that was missing. Um, and I've been talking a lot, so I can let you ask a question or I can continue down this if you want. No, I mean, please continue down. But um, just one thing that I want to ask, and I've got a very interesting mirror story for you where I was, in a way, the George in that situation. So I'll give you that in a moment, and not for the same reasons, of course. But um, but with him specifically, one thing that I've opened my eyes to hugely now is the impact of the job. And you said that the mental health storm that happens especially as our men and women get deeper in their career what was george like early on was he always this 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 yeah. cyclone or did he so, begin to change so no not at all he he was he was the guy you wanted on the truck uh he was very well liked um and he's to his credit like he is that person again i mean we all go through our seasons as people you know i call it a winter season george was in a winter season it was it's not a lot of growth. It wasn't beautiful springtime, you know, where he's learning everything and excited to be at work. It was a, it was a very dormant, terrible period for him. Um, so now he's back in a, I think would probably be like a summer season for him where he's really enjoying it. His coworkers enjoying it. You know, um, he's married again. His kids are doing great. So like, it's just, it's just amazing. I failed to realize just how much baggage people could carry around and still appear functional still and how perfectly reasonable demands and I would I would say you know correct feedback, um, all of a sudden aren't aren't right anymore, and the irony of it is because you've heard me mention the word relationship before is George had a relationship with Chris my captain, Chris was uh, one of his first lieutenants I guess I can't say one of first but he was one of his lieutenants um, at George's assignment before Chris got promoted to captain and moved to mine, and I didn't know that, so it would have been nice to have known but the reason I tell you that is. It's not enough to know somebody. It's, it's the ability to give them the feedback they need to hear because Chris had the opportunity to fix that issue way before it ever got out of control. And he chose not to because he was scared. And, you know, you asked me about times where I was scared. And it's like, I think that's so much of leadership. It's like 
I'm not scared in the buildings that are on fire, right? I trust the company. I trust my department. I trust the resources and training I have and, and she'll go bad. And, and that's not a good feeling, but it's those moments like one-on-one moments where you're like, I just want to say the right thing to you so that you can use this and, and help yourself. And I can't find it. Um, that's the stuff that's frustrating. And you know, the, the part that's scary is that I'm not enough. Like I can't help, uh, people enough. Um, so you know, that's where the, the all the all the reading about the emotional intelligence comes from. And then that's really what drove me to pursue the degree, which every time I was reading something, it was referencing another article that was in that industrial psychology umbrella. And I was like, God, like the fire service needs to know about this. And um, the irony of it is, you know, when I teach, I don't feel like I tell people a lot of things they they don't know. I feel like I'm just tying together loose constructs. So it's almost like stars in the sky. You know, you look up and like, that oh, the sky's beautiful. It's just a bunch of stars. And then a guy walks up and he's like, well, that's Orion's belt. If you connect this dot with this dot with this dot with that. Oh, it is. I know that now. Like, that's that's what this class is. Um, and again, the, the irony of it is, I feel like, um, and I said it earlier, like people are the problems, but they're also the solution. And I have found as a leader, I seem to have more effectiveness the more I shrug my shoulders and the more I say, I don't know. What do you think? Right? Not because I don't want to weigh in on it, but because... They've brought me a problem that they are directly exposed to. They have the most context of it, but maybe they're just a little too close. And I can't tell how close that is until I ask them to talk about it. And then maybe I've got some perspective because I've gone through something similar. I ended up in counseling the, the next year, not just because of George's you know, nonsense that was driving it home and that I was an absent father. I mean, stuff had been going wrong in my marriage for a long time. But I wasn't aware of it. I, I didn't create an opportunity for her to give me the feedback that I could have done that. So that became the priority. I tell you what, that was probably the scariest moment in my career was when, you know, we were fighting and, you know, I look and she's got a bag packed and it's like, well, what's that for? You know, and it's like, it's for you. Like, I, I don't want to leave my family. I don't want another man raising my children and, and lying in your bed. And like, well, how did we get here? Like, what do I need to do to fix this? Like, tell me how to fix this. Because we're so you know, oriented towards fixing people's problems. And it's like, I'm not sure you can. That's scary. Like, and it's like, all right, you are the, you are my sole, you know, uh, attention over the next two years to try to fix that. And luckily I was able to, but a lot of folks can't. And it doesn't even mean it's perfect now. Um, But it all comes back to that, that relationship piece. So the the emotional intelligence piece is like the self-awareness, the social awareness, relationship management, it's empathy, it's perspective taking, it's, resilience. Um, it's a lot of buzzwords that people hear. They just don't know that it falls under that umbrella. Um, and the irony of it is it's been around since like the concept of it has been around and studied, uh, beginning in the early 1990s. So it's not, it's not new. It's just something that we never really see a lot of value in it. Um, but I'll give you an example, like, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You're familiar with that, right? So that's like, that's taught I think in every fun, every recruit school or leadership class, like that's what the fire service prides itself on. Like take care of those physical needs and then you can ascend into, you know, having more influence on people's lives. And I'm like, well, here's the thing about that. Like I've seen leadership moments that have happened at 3 a.m. where people are not getting their physical needs met. So is that true? And so I've, I've always doubted it. And then I start looking into it and it's like, oh, they can't prove it. Like when they study it, it doesn't plan out. So it's catchy but it's not factual. That's not what motivates people. Uh, there are a lot of other motivational theories, but the, the one that is most commonly referenced uh, is a self-determination theory, where it's like people want and expect autonomy, 
They will operate highly in those moments. They want opportunities to express and, and gain competency. And that third one is they want to feel connected. They want to feel uh, related to what they're doing. They want to relate to their coworkers. They want to relate to the mission of the organization. And you're like, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we complain about millennials, but I'm like, that's everybody. That's, I don't care how old you are. Like relationships like that. I mean, that when you talk about mental health, like it is child neglect to not attend to your to your child. If you deprive them of, of contact, it is so destructive to their um, psychology that you, you can be charged with child neglect. That's how important relationships are. And we never grow out of that. We never grow up. Um, so I always tell people, you know, your your mom told you this w- when you were little. It's not what you say. It's how you say it. And that's a lot of what emotional intelligence is. Do I give him this feedback? Do I give it to him in the office? Do I, do I ask him to go for a walk and give it to him there? Do I sit on it? Do I, do I tell someone that's got a better relationship with him what I want him to tell him and then have him tell him? Do I do nothing? Like, what do I do? And, and the more experience you get with wrestling with those things, the, the better you get. You know, like We talk about reading buildings, reading smoke. It's time to read people. But if you don't have the training for that, you're not going to be able to do that, or at least not well. Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you for telling the story because this is a very, you know, courageous story to tell. A lot of ownership there. Um, and like I said, the 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 kind of mirror image of that. Um, I think I've only told this story a couple of times on here, but the last place I worked, one of the the men I got hired with ended up succumbing to basically a mental health crisis. He, he was, uh, I believe, an accidental overdose, deliberate, whatever it ended up being, probably accidental, I would think. But um, again, from the kind of illicit side, so forced into the shadows like so many of our men and women are. And very long story short, I volunteered to go down to um, you know, his hometown, um, which is a couple of hours away from our station on the, on the ladder, go set up the the flag with a, his previous station who just sent one guy in the rig. So we got there, we had to set up all the aerials and then, you know, put the flag up, wait, you know, went through the whole funeral service, waited right till all his family had left. So we didn't want to take the flag down until everyone had gone, grabbed some food and headed home. And the phone rings in the rig and my LT picks up super super nice guy one of the most mellow kind of you know just again you talk about kind of bedside manner he was that guy super kind and was actually a green beret back in the day and um he uh he just has this look of like dismay and we were like well what's wrong he said i was just ordered to go back and apologize to all the lieutenants of the stations and we we're like uh, f- for what and he said apparently they're complaining that we took too long at the funeral and uh, I have to apologize because they were running calls. And I'm like, so I'm like, okay, this must be miscommunication, whatever. So I get back to the station. I'm a, I'm actually assigned to a different station that night. So the guy on the rescue picks me up and I talk to him. I'm like, tell me this is wrong. And he's like, yeah, but it was really busy. And I'm like, motherfucker. So we get yeah. back to the station. And now, you know, I'm I'm building and building and building. They're, the entire station is watching TV in Lazy Boys. So I'm, I just basically go in like, please tell me this is this is wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is wrong, you know. Oh, yeah, but, but, but. And I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. So I went to my L- to, to the, the chief at the time, who I'm assuming was the one that actually had made the order, the BC, and start, I mean, I'm basically, I'm in tears. 
I'm fucking crying from anger and, and grief yeah. and all this stuff. And I told him, I'm like, I don't know how you cover me, but I'm going home because I got one or two choices. Either I go home or I do something that's going to like, you know, I'm going to lose my job. Someone's going to end up with a broken nose or whatever. And so, uh, but again, the whole way through, there was no acknowledgement of, oh, these guys just went and buried one of our brothers. It was, it, our life was so hard. We had to run, you know, an hour extra calls poor us and again it was a complete lack of leadership and then here's the thing for years later i was the crazy one. Oh, i don't want to work with- some people wouldn't want to work with me because james got all angry in the station i'm like the fact that you don't even understand why i was angry i mean and a switch went off <clears throat> excuse me from that day onwards i was like all right i th- this isn't going to end well so i ended up you know re- leaving there about three four years later because it didn't didn't get any better but that was a perfect example of people that had all the pieces of paper that you need and had no fucking idea what was going on with the people in their battalion. And when it came to that and they just laid to rest one of their own people, and I would get comments like, oh, I didn't really know him. He was he was new. Or, oh, why are you doing a fundraiser, James? Did you hear how he died? I mean, shit like that. So I was just so angry. But I mean, there's no better example of a complete systemic failure of leadership than that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are a lot of folks that have similar experiences, maybe not necessarily, um, you know, that extreme where you're, you're bearing a brother, but, um, you know, say they have a passion for something and they're not given an opportunity to, to take care of that passion or, or work in that passion or celebrate a passion. And they're like a fire pump that's, you know, at, at high RPM, but it's not moving any water. It just churns and it ruminates over the same water over and over and over again. And the result of that is it overheats, seals crack, it breaks. And then we're like, oh, must have been a shitty pump. And you're like, no, man, like you were the operator as a leader. You were the driver operator. And all you had to do was open a discharge and let that out and then give him some fresh water in because that's what you're supposed to be doing. And you could have helped him. But instead, you you destroyed him. And a lot of times, and that happens to leaders as much as it as it does, you know, the, the firefighters too. Like, I th- and it may actually happen more to leaders. Like, there are very few people, even that I've met, that I'm like, you're a genuine piece of shit, right? More of them are uh, kind of just a a summary of their experiences, and they were excited about the fire service at one time. They loved the fire service at one time, but they had an experience with someone, and that person t- took their passion, their love from them. And now they are who they are. So even, even people that I don't respect, I don't think they're terrible people. I just understand that they've gotten, you know, maybe a raw deal at some point and they don't have the leadership in their lives to help them back to it. Or maybe they're just in a season that they just don't have a need to go back to a spring or summer season and a growth mindset. Maybe that fixed mindset is all they need because they're getting ready to retire or they're leaving. But, um, it really bothers me when I hear stories about people leaving the fire service because of leadership or lack thereof, I, sh- I should say. Um, and I think the systemic problem we have is that the we're surface-level leaders, right? We're like, hierarchy, yeah, like bugles, yeah. And then it's like, I need to bring you a personal problem. And you're like, skirt, no, uh-uh. Like, I'm only here to deal with professional problems, right? I don't want to hear your personal problems. Like, I've actually been told that before. Like, I'm not your dad. Like, I'm, And you're like, well, I thought you were serving as a mentor. You know, I, I thought we were friends. We don't have to be friends, but I did think, like, that you were acting as a mentor, um, and but you're not. And uh, uh, all right. And then I'm 
a lot of times, I don't know if the relationship ever recovers from that, but I don't have the tool in my leadership toolbox to deal with George because nobody ever put it in there. Nobody ever modeled that for me. It was always, we just yelled at people to get them to do what we wanted to do. But that doesn't, that doesn't work. Like there's no water in George's pump. There's no suction. There's no water coming into that thing. So how, how could I possibly get the capacity I want out of him if I'm too stupid to see that? Um, and I don't have the tools to hook him up to the hydrant. George has got to do that for himself. Like he's got to refill his own tank and get that back in service. Um, so my part is not antagonizing that. And there's a way, because people always ask me like, well, what, do you, what would you have done differently with George? Uh, I would have loved him more. Like that's my honest answer. There are definitely times that I could have yielded. There were times where I didn't have to address every single thing that I saw that he was doing wrong. I could have forgiven him sooner. I could have been more patient. Certainly could have been more kind and empathetic. And I didn't get it until my wife was ready to leave me. Then I got it. Then, then I got how much I felt like a shell of my former self. Um, and I'm not saying you have to have those kinds of experiences to be able to relate to people. I think empathy can be learned from stories as much as it is your own personal experiences. But, uh, but daring to think that you could be wrong is probably one of the most brave things you can do as a leader in the first place. And I don't, ha I don't have all the answers, James. And I feel so empowered by saying that. I don't feel less competent or less credible. I, I think that's probably the direction we need to go. People look to leaders to have all the answers, but sometimes the lack of certainty around an answer is what actually invites that um, participation. Right. And, and that's part of the motivation thing. Right. If if autonomy is when you feel like your efforts have, a re, you know, produced the outcome and if you only ever do what you're told, you're, you're not participating. Right. And the leader is certainly not growing you. Um, and then I don't really particularly think that that's effective. I think it's more management than it is leadership. So that humility piece that allows that space and allows people to come in and say, hey, I don't like this or. When you say this, do you know you're coming across like this or um, just a space where they can come in and say, hey, I got a problem. Can I talk to you about this or uh, I don't know what to do with this. Can I can I just can I just talk out loud? And, and a lot of times they're not even looking for you to provide feedback. They just need to process what they're thinking out loud because the irony of that is neuroscience tells us that a different part of the brain thinks about it when you say it out loud which is a lot of times when you're excited to say something and then you say it out loud, you're like, ah, oh, that's better in my head because a different part of your brain gets a chance to filter it and it makes sense. So any kind of space where you have folks that can put in, that creates ownership, that creates autonomy, participation, and the result of that is increased motivation. And if you don't believe that, then work for a micromanager and see how excited you are to go to work. And what the effect of that is on your motivation, because that is the direct opposite of providing people autonomy. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where we I think that's where we left off. Yeah. No. And for everyone listening, if it sounds like we've kind of slapped two things together, we did because we got cut off halfway. Um, so you hit on something that I talk about a lot, which is, you know, you said, I don't think, you know, most people when they come into the to the department for the first time are pieces of shit. And I agree completely. And I think that most people that come and stand on that diamond on the drill ground at the first time of the academy or the orientation are, you know, morbidly obese and, and hormonally compromised and, you know, mentally drained either. So, you know, kind of tying into what we talked about at the opening of this discussion with creating an environment for our men and women to thrive, 
I think that when we start seeing these signs of burnout, whether it's, you know, compassion fatigue, whether it's this hair trigger on some of our, my, my, my LT a couple of departments ago, we're still good friends to this day, but he was like a ticking time bomb the whole time, you know, and I know it's because of, you know, stuff early in his life, stuff in his career, you know, 30 years of not sleeping. Um, but understanding that this job is going to beat you down. So when you have that person who, is acting like an asshole today. You got to ask yourself, was this a rotten egg we let through and has always been a complete douche? In which case, you know, you might look at it a little differently. But if Steve, Sandra, whoever used to be cool as hell and now they're a complete maniac in the station, maybe we shouldn't push in their buttons. Maybe we should be taken to the side and saying, look, this isn't like you. What is going on? Some of it might be current and some, which I'm just becoming more aware of now, may have been before they even went into this profession because we we attract a lot of people that have been very, very traumatized prior to putting the uniform on as well. And it might just be that this is the perfect storm to get that to manifest as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's actually true when you stop and think about it. I mean, that's why I entered it. You know, I, I had, you know, I don't want to say a trauma, but like there was a point in my life that left me very insecure with thinking that my father would have died because I didn't know what to do. So like that's my motivation, but I could see that in, in service men and women, and, and certainly in other situations where they bring in this thing, and then it's like uh, you just layer trauma over it, trauma and more trauma. And if you don't teach people how to process those feelings and kind of unload those layers, they may never actually get rid of what they brought, but at least shed those the things that the fire service is exposing them to. Then it can be it can be too much, and sometimes you get the warning signs, and sometimes you don't. You know, like we teach people, you know, that we should be able to predict flashover, but not always. Right. Like sometimes it's very obvious and sometimes we didn't see that coming. And I think that's the same thing with, with what we're seeing on the mental health side is um, we, we can't fix it because we don't understand it. And we can't understand it because like I've had moments in my career where I have lost hope and I have had moments in my career where I have been depressed but I don't think I've had any moments in my life or my career where those two things have happened at the same time. And it's like for me to express empathy towards that, to think about where, where people are taking their own lives because they cannot see any other way than, than that to end their pain. I can't wrap my head around that um, because I just haven't been there and I don't want, I don't want to ever go there. But because I, I haven't been there, I don't want to go there means I think we're always going to struggle to, to ever get in front of all of it. I think there's definitely some things we can do, you know, to get in front of some of it. Um, and in the attempt to try to get in front of all of it, I think that's a worthwhile pursuit. I just think we have to be realistic that we're there's just stuff we're not going to see, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I think using your analogy with the pumping and, and George as well, the way I look at this, when you look at the human element, is you go to the the engine and you're like, well, George, there's, there's a trash bag stuck in your strainer and your tank to pump is turned off. And so you start kind of deconstructing some of these layers. You're able to then get them back to the point where they are getting that fresh water from the hydrant. And one of the things that I talk about a lot, and again, this is just a, you know, a kind of aha moment for me, but I have a very unu unusual perspective where I worked professionally for four fire departments and then volunteered for a fifth. And so that was four hiring processes I went through. So three polygraphs that I've successfully lied my way through and two <laughs> psych <laughs> psyche valves, really? oh, excuse me, four psyche valves. And 
it's complete bullshit, both of them. Polygraph is complete smoke and mirrors. Anyone, if you want to Google the polygraph, the level that we do, it's basically to get you to blur out whatever because you think that the dude with the 12,000 certificates of him being the world's best polygrapher in the world is part of that act. And then you've got the side test, which we all know is basically so they can check the box. So if Benjamin goes and shoots up the fire station, that well, we, we told you, you know, we, we, we covered our ass, we... We tested him and it said it was fine. So neither of those serve the human being. So what I would love to see is another idea in the fire service is that we take that same budget so no one can say we don't have the money. Get rid of the polygraph and the psych test. Do a good background check that you do anyway that tells you if you or I are worthy of this position and then you've got the probation to do the other weeding out. And when you put people through orientation, put them through three, five sessions with a counselor. So Benjamin gets to talk about, you know, almost losing his father and the, the inability to save at that point. Or little Johnny who was abused as a child or Stephanie who grew up in a, you know, an addiction fueled household. They get to offload those traumas. So they get to empty that basket somewhat. Then as we progress through, we also have a go-to person that when you have an issue with your marriage when you see something horrific that has stopped you from sleeping. Now you have that go-to person as well. So to me, that is a way that we take away that check, you know, checkbox bullshit and, and, you know, pieces of paper that we talked about earlier. And you put in a human solution that not only will help offset trauma, but also make you more resilient mentally. So be able to perform better under the stress that we're put under. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. Um, I think we talked about uh, like a surface level of leadership before we got cut off. And um, I, this is, I liken this to, you know, you're walking down a public hallway, you recognize someone, you know, and you're like, Hey, how's it going? And he doesn't answer your question, but in turn he says, or maybe he says, Oh yeah, good. Hey, how about you? But neither of you stop walking and you just walk on right by each other. And that happens every day in our firehouses. Like, and we never go deep. We, we're never, we, we don't shit. We're, we're not vulnerable with our people. We're not humble. We don't share the mistakes we've made to help them. Like here's a perfect example. So I was proctoring a DPO test. So I'm on our DPO cadre. I've been on it for 12 years. Um, and I failed DPO in recruit Academy. Failed it, had to retest it. And I probably should have failed it a second time, but, uh, a firefighter who's now a Lieutenant and a good friend of mine was kind. And he's like, I think you've got this. Um, I want you to keep working on it. He's like, but if I check this box that you failed, they're going to fire you. And he's like, I think you're worth saving. So he's like, I want to make sure you're aware of where your deficiency is. But he's like, I believe in you. And to have that kind of experience so early on has been hugely impactful about how much work I'll, I'll put in to try to help others. So fast forward 15 years and I'm proctoring a test and it's, it's not going well for this, this kid. Like he's, I mean, he's created numerous safety issues and charged a thief open and the ground monitor is tilting. I mean, it's just a, it, it's just a disaster. And so I go to, to the lead instructor and I'm like, Hey, that's a failure. Like that's a, that's a, that's a failure every day. And he, like just multiple people that including peers in the class that are seeing it. So like the integrity of the programs at stake, but I went up to the kid afterwards and I'm like, so here's the deal, man. I'm like, is there any part of you that, that thinks that that wasn't a train wreck? And he's like, no, I, he's like, I know I failed before I told him. And I'm like, okay. I said, so let's focus on, let me go through some stuff and I'll tell you what I would have done differently or where you're expected to perform differently. So we go through that. And then 
the next statement was, and here's what I want you to know. This, this does not define you. I say, you have no idea the learning you're getting ready to have because you've had a moment of adversity. And adversity is what builds people. It's what builds their competency, what builds their skill set, their self-efficacy, their confidence, like overcoming and going through these things are worth it. And I'm failing you on this test because you are worth the investment of this organization to remediate the stuff that's happened. And you're worth it. And I want you to know that. And I said, and if you see this as just a failure, I'm like, you're selling yourself short. And I don't know if it made any difference, but sharing with him, you know, hey man, I, I failed this and you can still pass this. I did. Then I got promoted. Then I got promoted again. Like, and maybe I'll get promoted in the future. Like, you can get to where I'm at through a stumble. Um, and I think that's the vulnerability part where like, I, I don't know if it made any difference, but if, if I was getting that information, I'd be like, man, I respect this guy's candidness. I respect the fact that he put himself in my shoes. I respect the fact that he's not beating his chest and yelling at me for making mistakes and, and he wants to help me. Like, and so then behind the scenes, you start putting stuff in motion. So you figure out who this officer is. I figure out who the people are on that officer's ship that have the relationships with him. And I put pressure on the people that I have relationships that have relationships with that guy's boss to put pressure on him to do a better job of training his guy. And, and that's how we get better, you know, and, and no, uh, stop wagging the fingers and, and start look like before you ever do this, you should, you should look at this and start here. And then once you've got this all straight, then you can start pointing things out. But to lay stuff at people's feet is, is not fair. Um, so that's just an example, I think, of, of what that would look like. Um, and I think what we're building to is, is what I tell people in the class. Like, I'm, I'm along the same leadership journey that everybody else has been along. Right? I got promoted and I wanted to be popular. And that, that lasts, but only for so long. It just, it can't, right? You're asked to make decisions um, because you're telling people what they can and can't do. If you're not, then they wouldn't need you but they're paying you good money to do it. So after you get over the popularity, you're like, all right, well, if, if not everyone likes me, then I want to be respected. So then I, yeah, I go through the experience with George. I'm like, I did everything right by him that I could, that I knew how. He doesn't respect me. So it's like, well, if I can't get everybody to like me and I can't get everybody to respect me, like, does that make me bad as a leader? And I spent a lot of time in thinking that I, would, I was just complete failure. And then at some point, you know, you, you take on enough change and you realize and, and you look in the mirror hard enough and you realize that it, the purpose of leadership was never to be popular or even to be respected. The purpose of leadership was that people like how they feel about themselves when they are around you. And if they're not able to do the job, then you love them to the door. But if they're around you and they love themselves, then they can do their job because otherwise you're giving them information that would make them uncomfortable. And people won't do that. A lot of a lot of leaders are scared to go that. And a lot of leaders will get to the point where they realize when well, I was going to like me, not everybody's going to respect me. But they never grow into that next piece of like, I care how James feels about working with me. And when you get to that point, you start really believing that leadership's a privilege. George took that privilege from me. It didn't matter what I said, whether it was right or wrong. He took that away from me. And I don't want that. I don't want that for anybody. Um, and then the rest of the ship took it away from me, too. And that's a that's a huge leadership failure. So it matters. Like, it matters how we, we pay attention to that. The 
the flip side of George is a, is a story with the first senior firefighter I worked with, the guy that I got promoted over. He's got a reputation when I get there of being a know-it-all, of being, um, you know, posting stuff on Facebook. And, and the dude is teaching at FDIC, James. I mean, he's, he knows this job so well. And he is somebody in the fire service, not just our department, but in the fire service. Quickly recognizing that he needs a discharge open and, and moving him along that line, it would have been tempting to give him that feedback, like right off the gate. But I didn't. I uh, worked out with him. I trained with him. I held conversations with him about the team because I trusted that I could, you know, and the more he proved that he could hold my confidence, you know, on private, the more I shared with him. That was his leadership development was, hey, man, like, let's talk about the problem and what tools do we have collectively to fix this? Because he fixed a lot of stuff that I couldn't from that informal leader position. And then he gets an opportunity to be a um, training instructor. So he applies for that. He interviews for that and they pass. And you're like, why, why? Oh my God, you would be lucky to have this dude. Like, oh my, gee, you're, you're killing people by not letting this guy train them. And, um, and the chief and the, I think he was a captain. He might've been a lieutenant of, of training went by the station and they actually talked with him about, you know, how his interview went and uh, why they didn't pick him up. And so I asked him, I was like, you know, one, that was really cool. They did that because most people wouldn't. I said, two, what did you, what did you get from that? And, uh, and he's like, I don't, I don't really know. I, you know, I, I guess I got something out of it, but I haven't really figured out what that is yet. So then back to this relationship piece, right? You know, back to what Chris did with uh, George, like just because you have the opportunity to say something doesn't mean you actually said it the appearance of communication. And so I called the chief and I'm like, hey, would you mind if I came in and and had a meeting with you about my guy? And because he's got a promotional interview coming up and I really want to want to help him improve in the areas that he didn't perform well in, in the interview. So the chief's like, sure. So I go and meet with him I'm on my day off. I'm not being compensated for this. I'm spending time away from my family. And I get out of that meeting way more than what they felt comfortable telling this guy. And part of it was we were afraid he was going to come in and run the program and take it over. We were worried that he wouldn't work well with the other instructors. We know he knows what he's doing. He's a phenomenal firefighter. He's a great leader in this organization, but we're worried about what happens to the other instructors in his presence. And that's like, that's going back to what I just said. It matters how people feel about themselves around you. And so you've got, like, I've got this information that he doesn't have. Maybe he knows that in his heart. Maybe he doesn't. But it's like, when do you give him this information? So I sat on it for a couple of weeks. And um, one day we're getting ready to go for a run. And we would run laps around the high school that the fire station was from across or the middle school. And uh, so we were, we got really comfortable having conversations for prolonged conversations about serious matters while we were running. And I think one of the reasons that is, is because as you go into areas that create nervous energy, you have an outlet, you have a discharge that's open because you're running, you're using up that energy. And I teach in the class, if you're having a difficult conversation and you start seeing someone shift in their seat or you hear their foot start kicking the table or they're bouncing in the seat or tapping their pencil, that's nervous energy and they've got nowhere to go. And when you think about how smart it is to say, like, hey, man, I got to have a serious conversation with you. Come in here, close that door and sit down. You're like, well, there's no discharge. You close the door, which never makes anybody feel good. And you sat him down and 
now what do you do? So you hope that they don't do anything. But the fight or flight response tells me that, that they will either want to go through that door or they want to go through me. So figure out a way that you can have that conversation without creating that response. And part of it starts with the relationship. If the guy doesn't see me as a threat, he sees me as someone who he can trust, then when I give him that feedback, it doesn't register the same emotional response in him. And that's what happened. It, while we're running, hey, man, so uh, you got your promotional interview coming up. What do you want to do different? And he goes, well, I don't know. Uh, he's like, I don't really know. He's like, I felt like I didn't. I felt like I did okay. Um, like, I feel like my resume speaks for itself. What, what should I, what should I have done differently? And instead of telling him what his problem was, I said, I, I need you to stop. Uh, I really want you to think about this in an environment in which you're teaching new hires with other instructors. Why wouldn't they pick you? And he knew maybe it's because I'm, maybe it's because I'm, I'm too much at times and I'm too passionate. And I was like, let's talk about it. So then for the next 30 minutes, we talked about it, but like all I had to do was open up a discharge and he pumped out his own solution. And so I was like, all right, so now that we're aware of this and we know this problem, what are we going to do about it? And we prepared his interview. We did a mock interview at the firehouse with the other firefighters. And I told him, I'm like, they're going to ask you a series of questions. What we need to do is reconcile your reputation. And what I mean by that is you think you're a person. You think you have a certain skill set of qualification. The folks across that table are going to ask you questions and they're going to leave with maybe the same, but maybe different. Or maybe they've heard of you and they come into the room thinking differently of you. Our job is to reconcile all of that. And we want them to have a clear outlook of who you are. And so the first interview question for him was something like, you know, name a time that you made a mistake. What was it? And, you know, what would you do differently? And so this kid, this like to everyone else, this cocky, arrogant, know-it-all firefighter opens up about a story where his son tells him, daddy, or asks him a question, daddy, why do you hate the fire service at dinner? And he's like, what do you mean? I love the fire service. He's like, you're never happy when you go to work and when you come home. And he's like, he's like, that was a very defining moment for me. He's like, why am I so unhappy? And he like vomits all this personal stuff about where he pushed when he should have yielded and, and all the stuff we talked about and all the feedback he'd ever gotten from people way before me. But now like the constellation we talked about earlier, he could see the big picture. And uh, the guy that was giving me the feedback on how that went said like, I mean, they were moved almost to tears in the room. And he, he scored top score on that. He scored top in the interview and he was promoted. And when everybody kept asking me, like, why is it, what did you do to get him promoted? I'm like, I didn't do anything. He did all of that himself. I just opened up the discharge. His motivation is the RPMs. His motivation is the engine. I'm not the engine on this. And leaders aren't the engines. Like, we're the ones that need to open up the discharges and help them see the need to rev up or decrease their performance. Um, but it's not ours to own. Like, his problems are not mine to own. They are mine to help him help himself. Um, and so, you know, I had the failure with Chris, but I look at that as a large success and he's been promoted again and he'll be promoted again. And he's still a great friend, like a great friend. And when I got in the, the barrel with Chris or with uh, George, he was there by my side, even though he was a peer now working somewhere else. He was by my side. Uh, that's the collective brain trust that moves the fire service forward. Um, that's deeper level of leadership than what most folks were willing to do. Um, I think you can be a friend with your, your coworkers, your subordinates, your supervisors. 
I totally believe you can. I believe you can have rich, beautiful relationships with them that transcend anything than you could get than just at a 24-hour shift. But the people around you make that decision, right? So as a captain, the lieutenants that report to me, they make the decision. They allow me to access to them or, or they deny it, right? They, they want to hear what I have to say or they don't. So I can't be a buddy when I need to be a boss if they've made the decision that, I, that they only want professional from me. And I just need to be sensitive to that. But if they want more from me, you're getting it. And we can be friends. But you always have to understand that, like, th this is where I'm at. And you've got to meet me at, at, at this point. Um, I can't just pretend I'm not the captain when you tell me something. But I think all that comes with time, if, if any of that makes sense. No, it does completely. And, and one of the things that really, you know, sticks out to me is, is a couple of fallacies in the fire service that drive me crazy. One is no one cares where you came from and what you did there. I say absolute bullshit in the first day. Probably just keep your mouth shut, you know, learn learn the department's way. But if you've got good ideas as you start getting deeper into your your year, say, hey, in my old place, not, oh, this is stupid. We used to do this, this way. But, hey, here's what we used to do. You know what? That's amazing. We should we should try that one time. But the other thing is, as you promote, you stop, you know, you can't be friends with your men or your women. I think that's absolute bullshit. Yes, there's rank. Yes, definitely on day one, you need to set the bar. Like, here's, you know, here's expectations. But after that... If you let the pendulum swing the other way, like, oh, I'm your leader, you need to just do what I do, then, yeah, you just close the door of communication for any of the human side at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just be a decent human being. <laughs> you know, that that's all it is. And to your thing about, you know, we don't care where you came from, bullshit, because we just asked you a bunch of interview questions that asked you to talk about where you just came from and how you answered that determined whether we hired you or not. So, yeah, we we definitely care. Well, really what we have is we haven't created that space for you to offer up what you know yet. And, you know, traditionally, it's not time for you to do that. But like, you know, our hiring model, we value people that participate in the community. We value people that have service to their country. We value people that play sports that are team oriented because we see common threads with that in the fire service. But if I think for a moment that just because I've got almost 20 years in public safety, that if we hire somebody tomorrow that's 45 years of age, which we, we have, that has been in the special forces and fought in a war and been away from his family and had to deal with that and, le and led from overseas and, and been a father figure and a husband. And he shows up to the firehouse the first day as a rookie. And I tell him, I don't care what you've done in this life or who you think you are. It's like, <laughs> what a great way to start the relationship. But what a disappointing, wh what a loss that is. Because that, that guy's got so much to give, so much to give. And what I need to be doing is talking with him about those experiences so that I can figure out where to plug him in and how to help his strengths and see where he's not self-aware. But if I only ever talk about me or what I think, I never get to actually size up where he is. So, I mean, that's like never getting out of the cab after you do your size up. You're like, oh, I just graved this great size up over the radio. Meanwhile, there's heavy fire and people hanging out of the windows on side Charlie, but because you refuse to you know, allow something that you don't already know into the conversation. You're never going to see the full picture. Um, it's just such a waste for me. And that's like, that is what I'm trying to chase out of leadership. Like get rid of the bravado, get rid of the ego, introduce vulnerability, introduce the fact that you could be wrong, which spoiler alert, you are a lot more than you think, a lot more than you think. Um, and then give you, you know, some tips and tricks from either experience or research uh, or academia even to to help you, and then you pick the tool next time the problem comes up. I, I'm not going to tell you this 
tool always works because it, it doesn't. Um, but I will, like a halogen bar forcing a door, I will train you on every aspect of that that I know of. And then it's yours to go play with and mess around with and see what works for you because it's going to operate differently in your hands than it will with mine. And um, I, I think that's, I think, I just feel like that's, that's true for leadership. No matter what job you're in, I think, I feel like that's true. Absolutely. I think one thing from my last, my most recent experience is also don't ask how you feel you could improve the department if once you get hired, you don't want the person to try and improve the department. Because <laughs> I'm sure that that was probably, was that, was that an element of your your good story, your good senior firefighter, the the frustration with trying to do good and, and maybe not getting buy-in? Because I oh, can relate yeah. to that 100%. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. James, you know this. They will hurt you with your caring. If you give a shit, the organization will punish you for it over time. Maybe not the first time you do, but at some point you're going to run into a roadblock and you're going to feel so strongly and passionately about what it is you know or or want to do, and they're going to say no. And then if you keep pushing, it will cost you. They will withhold that promotion from you. They will transfer you away from an assignment you like. Um, you will receive additional scrutiny. You will be introduced into the you know gossip and rumor mill. If you care, if you dare to be more than just average, it will it will hurt you. It will cost you. If you want to be great and you go take conferences, that's time away from your family. If you want to move up in the organization past the frontline supervisor, you're probably going to have to work some administration, at least temporarily, just to gain insight into that. Especially if you want to be a you know a chief officer or higher. That's time away from your family. It costs you, like, and we just need to understand that. Um, and if you're willing to pay that cost, then that's okay. Or if you can pay that cost, like a, a single guy traveling the country trying to be a fire chief, you know, that, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if, if I tried to ascend a fire chief right now with a, a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old who are still figuring out who they are in this world, and I was at work all day, late hours, what a failure of that that is for me, you know? And there's no way the department gets the best out of me in that. And so I'm failing in two places. But ego tells us that I, that I should be that, right? I get asked it all the time, like, when are you going to put in for chief? Like, I don't know. When's it going to be a good fit for my family and the department and me? When an opportunity presents itself that's in my strength and it's a good time for me and my family and it's right for the organization and the folks that I would serve, then I'll do it. But until then, I'm perfectly capable of operating from where I am and having huge levels of influence. It just may not be the way you just may not be the way you, you would want it to be or, or you think it might be. Um, but there's just because one discharge won't open doesn't mean you don't have a, a series of another's that you could flow through. And for me right now, like I don't have a, I don't have a team anymore as a safety officer. I miss that. I miss teaching. I miss uh, mentoring, counseling, coach. I miss all. I miss people. Uh, so I have had to find new opportunities to go out and be able to talk with people. And the mental health thing is what I'm advocating strongly. Just going in and checking on people that have been on extended leave, or that have suffered recent injuries, um, or who I haven't seen in a while, and just asking how they're doing. And maybe that's all we talk about is our, is our kids' little league team. We don't ever talk about the fire service. But that doesn't mean that's not influence, you know. And so, like, I'm growing in people right now way more than I'm growing in my competencies as a, a command officer. And that's not necessarily what I want, but that's just because my ego is like, no, you want to be a good command officer, but you can't ever go wrong investing in people skills or investing in people. So that's, I just had to find a different discharge. Nobody had closed it. I just thought it was closed because I was focused on the one that was closed on me. 
when I didn't ask for it when I got moved. So, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, we've been chatting for over two hours now. Um, and <laughs> yeah. what I love is in this conversation, you've, you've told stories and so many different different ways of looking at this leadership topic without, you know, doing a class or hitting bullet points or anything like that. So, I mean, I think people listening would have got a lot out of this. We're about to hopefully open up. Florida, I think, has just removed our emergency, you know, status now. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping that we're going to be able to be moving freely again very soon. So for people listening, let's go to this first. Where can they learn about more, excuse me, more about you, the Embracer Resistance and, and the classes that you'll be able to put on as we open up? So right now, uh, as soon as you get done listening to this, you can go to the website. That's the first place that we can interact together. Uh, it's EmbraceResistance.com. Uh, and there you will find podcasts like this. Uh, you'll also find uh, blog articles where I, I'm writing these stories. So you can kind of glean what you want out of that and whether it applies to you or not. Um, and that's that's really where it started was I I was in such a struggle, such a place of like, I don't know what to do next. And all, everything I read about leadership presented it this, as this simple, clean cut, black and white, binary do this and you'll achieve this result. I'm like, I'm doing these things and I'm not successful. What am I missing? Um, and it all presented it from the lens of, of like uh, having arrived at the top of the mountain. Like I was successful because I did these things. I'm like, where's the aspect of the dirty side of leadership is what I call it. Like where's the area that nobody wants to talk about of failure and frustration and it, where you're okay to say, I hate the fire service because you don't really, but you're just frustrated with it. And that's where I started putting that stuff. And because I couldn't get it published because nobody knew who I was, I just put it on a website. Technology is a wonderful thing. Um, and if you like what you see there or you like what you've heard, then um, as COVID opens back up, there's, there's plenty of chances to, to see the program. So we'll be at all the major conferences, FDIC, FRI, Firehouse Expo, um, I mean, pretty, uh, Inner Schultz, like a revolution at the lakes, like every, every larger conference we'll, we'll have a chance to speak at. Um, so I hope if you get that opportunity, you'll sit in because I would enjoy the conversation as much as hopefully you've enjoyed hearing James and I talk. Beautiful. Well, moving to some closing questions then. The first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah. So the, the, two, the one that I probably would recommend, recommend it to people more is um a book called quiet leadership and it's by david rock and it's it's a kind of a paradigm style for what we've been talking about in leadership moments where and, it, and it's really very novel in its approach it's it's where you are asking for permission to lead which sounds silly that but what it is is it's talking about this environment where your people bring you a problem and you're helping move them along like they're playing a game where they're rolling the dice and moving forward so many spaces. And you are strategically asking questions um, and inviting feedback, providing feedback in a way that allows them to move their own game piece forward. No matter how many spaces they've rolled on the dice, they're moving through this faster instead of letting ego or humility or instead of letting ego bravado occupy those spaces. So I, that's one I really like. Um, the other one that he also authored is Your Brain at Work. Um, so if, if you want to know a little bit more about the neuroscience stuff, but without it being completely nerdy, this is a it's a good book. It'll tell you why you shouldn't check your email first thing in the morning. It, it'll tell you why you're so drained 
after you do that task list when it's something that you don't enjoy doing an aspect of your job. Um, and it just lets you, it'll just provide insight into why you feel the way you feel. And that I think will help you develop some strategies and habits on how you want to fix your problems. Um, the, the last one is, um, uh, I think, uh, leader, leadership is language. Language is leadership. And, uh, it's by the same guy that wrote, uh, fix your ship. Um, David Marquette, or I can't think of his name. I'm trying to see if I've got it back here. Uh, it, it's somewhere in there, but, um, it's, it's a beautifully written book, right? It, it builds on what he wrote in Fix Your Ship, um, but it ties in a lot of the emotional intelligence pieces and it does so in a way that it's, it's understandable and it's not nerdy and, and is completely relatable. Um, really, really well-written book. So those are the, those are the three of, of the many back here that, that I'd probably put people onto first. Beautiful. All right. Well, the next question, is there a movie and or documentary that you love? Oh, all right. So for movie, um, I think Shawshank Redemption jumps right out at me first. Uh, and I, I think it's like, it, here's what's funny, James. Like if, if you ask people, do you enjoy conflict? Most people's answer will be like, no, I do Absolutely not. not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's not right. That's not, that's not factual. And here's how I know that. Because if I gave you the chance to go to the Super Bowl and to see two teams, but you had to pay $10,000 to do it, and the score at the end of that game was 100 to nothing, how much fun would you have had compared to the experience where there's three overtimes and they win on a Hail Mary pass at the last second? And they kept throwing the ball. I didn't understand why they were doing that. Yeah. And, yeah, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> what is this football you speak of? Um, we love conflict. Like professional wrestling and, and professional sports are built on conflict, one over the other. We love it. We just don't like it when we're going through it. Um, and so I think tying that into like the reason I love the Shawshank Redemption so much is you've got this gentleman in Andy who is given this shit sandwich and like he figures it out and he does it with the help of some friends. Um, but he, he could have spent the whole movie pining over his circumstances and not with this fixed mindset. But he, he put in the work and he sees the opportunity and he got on the other side. And any movie that's got some really douchey bad guys, like they're just like, oh, I hate this guy. That's, that's usually going to be a good movie. That's called a you know, protagonist or an antagonist. And they write those in the scripts because they know secretly you enjoy conflict. Like they need something antagonizing it. So those are the movies that, that jump out at me more where you've got some central character who's just something is just going really wrong for him and he's working or she's working to overcome that thing. Um, and I think I can say without losing credibility, like I love superhero movies too because all that's built into it, right? Like these, you know, whether they were average at one point and then gained superheroes or now they're above average, but they're fixing problems. Like they're responding. Like I, I love that kind of stuff. Beautiful. Have you ever been to the the prison in Ohio where they shot Shawshank? No, I sure haven't. You got to go. I went with my wife, was it last year? I guess it must have been very early last year. And they built a brand new prison next door. It's, it's the, I think it's the reformatory is what it's called, Ohio Reformatory, but it's got another name as well. But anyway, um, so they left it as it is. And, and it's, you know, sadly, 
kind of um, you know the rusted out and and kind of nasty. But s- at some point, someone intervened and they turn it into a museum. So you, oh, you can great. go there and see you know certain areas where they shot the films and certain rooms they use as sets. You know when the one character hangs himself and all these different areas. But so so well done. And I think that movie, that movie, and Band of Brothers are probably the two top answers. And then Rocky. Um, to that yeah, question yeah. that I've had over 450 plus episodes now. Yeah. Well, see, now I feel like I lack originality, but, you know, I still stand by my answer. It's a good fucking movie. Well, exactly. <laughs> Same with Band of Brothers, though. There's no better example, I think, of mental health than yeah. seeing real World War II heroes in tears recounting what they went through. That's masculinity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll offer this too. Surprisingly, uh, these Disney movies, you know, like that I watch with my kids. A lot of them are really good. Like um, up, I don't remember. You know if you saw. Oh that. yes, yeah. And uh, you're sitting there watching a kids movie and you're crying and you're like, "Holy cow! This is like ten minutes in." You know when his wife dies and they don't get to take the trip. He was. It's like, "Oh my god! What are they doing to me here?" But then it's this beautiful story about finding what's next. Uh, and and Disney does a great job of doing that. So I always enjoy the kids movies as much as I do anything. There was a. There was one that I joked, Emotional Intelligence one, I'm trying to think about it. It's got the, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically the whole story of what's happening in the brain. They've got the characters, anger and jealousy. and Yeah, what sadness. the hell is it called? <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Ah. Yeah, but watching that is hilarious, especially like when it comes to like, I'm going to put the foot down, like with the, with the teenage daughter and everything. But the end of it is so beautiful when you realize you can be happy. You can feel like emotions are so complex. You can feel happy and sad about something at the same time. Um, and I, I think like, I don't know how they did it, but it's like, wow, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, I think that kind of stuff's kind of cool too. Brilliant. Yeah. I just sobbed my way through uh, Coco again on Cinco de Mayo. Oh God, that, <laughs> golly, babe, that's a tough one. That's a tough one to watch. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah, good. It's, it's really good. Absolutely. All right. Well then the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Hmm. Yes, there's a, there is, there are a few. Um, and I apologize if you have already had them on because you have so many podcasts, I can't listen to them all. But, um, have you ever had, uh, Mike Galliano on your podcast from Seattle fires, retired captain that does the marriage stuff? Yes. 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 He is coming on. Actually, we had, we have one schedule. I want to say I had something come up and we had to reschedule, but yeah, they are coming on very, very soon. Perfect. Well, and so, I, and you can tell him I said this, I think the world of him, I think everything that we've been talking about, about getting rid of ego, he's been doing for decades in the fire service. It's just who he is at his, at his core. It's just a good dude with a beautiful message and uh, the vulnerability piece, you know, like where he's talking about openly about problems, you know, in marriage and writing this book is just, it's just on display. So he's obviously one. Um, David Rhodes is another, uh, the, the smoke daddy of, um, uh, shoot, I'm blanking on it. I'm embarrassed that I don't know. George's uh, smoke, smoke diver. Yeah. yeah he he yeah. was on, he was on, uh, okay. probably yeah. about a year and a half ago now. Yeah. Uh, another beautiful example of a human being been through a lot of adversity. Aw- awesome. Awesome. Um, if you want to know the truth of everything I've said today, you can have my wife on. She'll tell you the correct version. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll think about it some more and then I'll, I'll teach you a message because I'm sure there's some people I'm overlooking that that would be awesome, you know, guest on your show. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you online, what do you do to decompress? 
Oh, so I think, uh, so I think decompressing might be a little bit different than processing. Maybe they're the same, maybe they're not, but I think it, in, in decompressing, I enjoy hanging out with people in a small group fashion, one or two people. As I've gotten older, I'm, I'm less extroverted. And I think that's probably goes back to wanting a deeper quality relationship with people. And you can't have that necessarily fostered in a large environment. So I think um, having a, you know, a beer or a meal with a close friend is probably, or even my wife is probably how I, I decompress that. Um, processing, however, which I think aids in decompressing, like figuring out how I feel about what's happening. I think I do that through conversations like this. I do it uh, through teaching, where sometimes I'm learning as I'm even saying something that I thought I knew. I'm thinking about it differently. Uh, certainly in my writing, that's where a lot of it comes from. Is it, it's, it reads more like a dear diary than it actually would a professional uh, publication. But I think just daring to put something out in space and then manipulating it and thinking about it in a novel way is, is probably... Um, aids in the processing, which would aid in the decompression. You mentioned uh, about being extrovert initially. I had um, a, a guest on, Matthew Pollard, who is actually in, in Australian in the business space, but he uh, he wrote a book on on um, introversion. And I always thought, I was sort of kind of sat somewhere in the middle. Like, I'm not super life of the party by any means, but I'm not, you know, recluse either. But he had a great definition that I think would change how a lot of us look at look at ourselves. And I, I realized, okay, I am an introvert, actually. He said, if you get your strength, if you recharge by being in an audience, in, in a big group, you have to go out, you have to, and that's where you, you kind of upgrade, then you are a true extrovert. If you recharge in that infinite, uh, uh, intimate conversations at home, whatever it is, then you're actually an introvert. And that's why some people struggle in the firehouse. And I had this, like I was always outside walking laps around the station or just kind of getting away, kind of just having my, my time. And then I'm totally fine, you know, having a foo fight back in the, in the kitchen again. But so with that definition, where do you get your strength from? So I, I always tell people that I'm an extroverted introvert because I, I got latched onto that definition uh, a while ago and absolutely see it where I don't say that people drain me, but my desire to go above and beyond for people is draining in itself. So the more people I come into contact with, like when I'm teaching, trying to maintain command and control of information and the presentation over eight hours, at the end of the day, I'm exhausted because I'm trying to deliver a product that people can relate to that's entertaining, that's not death by PowerPoint, and it takes everything uh, from me. And then you know, I go to dinner after teaching, and I'm able to talk with folks one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one. -on -one. They tell me a story that, you know, maybe the class helped them understand differently or something I didn't know that they thought of and they're telling me and I feel recharged again. And I'm, I'm ready to go out and, and do that. But uh, when I was younger, I partied all the time. Now, if, if we get invited to a party, we go. But I want to be in bed by 10. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm, an, I just, I'm an old, you know, old person almost. But, uh, yeah, and one of the jokes about the, the – um, extroverted introvert example is you go to a party and like you'll talk with everybody and then you just leave you don't say goodbye to everybody you don't take the time to say you just ghost you just gone and i was like yeah that uh i was like that is definitely me like when i'm i have fun but when i'm ready to go i am ready to go and uh and i just leave and so that's definitely where i, I find myself um most of the days but and 
you know, small groups, my kids drain me, but at the same time, little comments they make and smiles, they glance my way and kisses I get, all that stuff recharges you right back up. So it's a, it's an interesting dynamic. And I think there may be moments where we're a little bit of both. You know, just because you're not comfortable public speaking doesn't mean you can never be extroverted. It just means it's not your scene. So once you find your scene, there's a good chance that no matter what you're doing and no matter how many people are involved, you probably are recharging in it. But then there's a lot of scenes that you will not recharge in no matter how many people are there. Yeah. Or you public speak, like you said, you know, that's you're charged. You go out, you do a great presentation. But when you're done, you don't go to a club with everyone from from the, the you know FDIC or whatever. You just go back and have dinner with yeah. your wife. Yeah. And that's that's definitely been a struggle for me as a speaker. It's a networking aspect of it. Um, and thankfully, I've been able to overcome that. But it's been one or two conversations at a time. It's never been in a in a big setting is I just I look at a lineup where I'm going to speak and I figure out who I want to talk with. And then I, I try to reach out to them proactively and, and get dinner on the books. And, um, you know, I, I don't advertise I'm going dinner because I don't want anybody else to show up with them. And and I just get to have that conversation. And then, like, eventually it builds to groups. But that that's much rather what I would be doing, because I, I think that allows you to go deeper with folks. Um, and I'm more interested in knowing about you and knowing what you're going through than just in saying that. I, oh, yeah, I know James. Like, I, you know, I met him one time. That doesn't, that doesn't do anything. Yeah, yeah, because we had we had pizza one time. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I remember. Well, so, and that's a perfect example, right? And that doesn't that conversation where it was happening and the people it was happening with is effortless because we're all like minded. Um, you know, I remember I think Jared was there. Um, Mark alone. If, yeah, Mark and Jared, myself, and I think there was like one other person. But we're all like we're we may have a different flavor of it, but we're all selling the same thing. And so it's very effortless to fall into a conversation with people like that. So even with more numbers, you can still get recharged in that um, moment because you're excited to talk about what they're and you're excited to hear what they have to say about stuff. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so I, I was fortunate that you sat in on the class and, and you wanted to talk about it because otherwise I would probably have sat there and just ate pizza. Like I, <laughs> I was tired from teaching. Uh, but I got in, I got re-energized for that conversation we were able to have. And then four years later, here we are. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, the last thing then, if people want to learn more about you online, obviously, we've got EmbraceTheResistance.com. Where else can they reach out to you, social media, that kind of thing? So thank you for asking that because I, I, I'm so bad at bios because I forget stuff. But we have the Facebook page. Uh, so we have the website, Embrace Resistance, but we also have the Facebook page. Uh, which, you know, we'll either pull stuff in from other sites or we'll publish original stuff, or maybe it's not a full length blog. It's just a article or a meme or just a message, um, out to you. But the idea is that we, you know, trying to create some sort of community and there are resources there that you can go out and you can get plugged into. Um, if you go to the website, you'll find my email address and you'll also find my cell phone number. So if, like, if you want to talk, it may take me a day or two to call you back, but if you leave a message, I'll absolutely reach out. Um, and that's been the most humbling part of this is it's to take a penny, leave a penny example. Sometimes someone calls me and I've got some pennies that they can take out of the tray to complete their transaction. And other times they call and I don't have any, I don't have any experience that, you know, would offer them any insight. Um, and sometimes I take some pennies. I'm like, Ooh, I like how you handled that. Or I like what you're thinking. I hadn't thought of that. I, you know, um, Sergi's a perfect example of that. The first time I heard him say that, you know, the great leaders lead people from where they are instead of where you want them to be. 
they close the distance to go to them and then they help them to where you want them to be is just something I didn't, I knew, but I didn't know how to articulate and hearing him say it is just so freaking cool. Um, so that I like, that's the idea. And all of this is underscored by the idea of what you already know, which is the fire service, the goal that we're showing up every work day is to help the citizens and then to leave the fire service better than we found it. That's how I operate. And yet ego prevents us from doing that because as soon as we start looking at transitioning away from something, whether it's a committee or rank or an assignment, we start like our identities wrapped up in that and we can't do it. And we get upset when people take that from us. But it's like, you were never going to keep it anyway. You knew you weren't going to keep it. You told yourself you weren't going to keep it. Why are you not building this so that people can step into it? Why are you preventing people and creating roadblocks and actually like undermining what you're doing? And I, I see that all the time, unfortunately. I see it in, in some of the folks that I respect as leaders in the fire service, um, especially like conferences is a perfect example. You don't get into a conference. Everybody's got a really important message. I get that. But there's only so many slots. Um, and some of the reactions I've seen online from people that are very respected leaders, they're childish. They're like, somebody, please tell me what I'm doing wrong. I didn't get selected for the 20th time, you know, to, to FDIC. And they're like, dude, that's that's a great run. I'm, I'm excited for the kid that got your slot. Aren't you? Because just not getting that doesn't mean you're not going to have 30 gigs next year and you're not going to have influence and, and your credibility is not challenged by this. But it's amazing how quickly we'll get spun up around the axle when we don't get that bump in status by getting what we want. Um, but that's a moment of adversity. Like that's a moment you can discover yourself in and you can find out and be better and then hopefully be an advocate for your, you know, what you learned, which I think the best instructors are. I think all we're doing is advocating for what we've learned through our own trials and tribulations. Absolutely. Well, beautiful. I just want to say thank you so much. It's been such a great conversation. And again, I didn't have a lot of like questions written down. I really didn't. Just had some ideas. I'm like, all right, this is going to be an organic flow because, you know, I didn't want to have. So, what are your three tenets of? You know what I mean? All those kind of bullshit stories that we hear over and over again under this subject. But the storytelling that you brought to this conversation, I think, has really not only resonated with me, and I can I can definitely see the characters in your story in places I've worked, and including myself. You know, the 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 humbling elements of some of the things that I I've done wrong as a quote unquote leader in the past. Um, but you know, it's just, it's so refreshing to hear it, you know, through a courageous lens, not I'm a great leader and here's how I've been a great leader, but here's how I was a shit leader. And Jason Redman, the Navy SEAL is a perfect example of that. Like if, if his, um, oh God, is it the Trident? I forget the, the name of his book now, but, um, the, this is a guy that was horrendously wounded in a firefight and most of his book isn't about that. It's about here's what a shit leader I was. And here's when I finally realized what I was doing wrong. And so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of reminds me of that. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We talked for two and a half hours. Um, it was definitely worth the wait. And uh, Oh, yeah. Well, I've really been looking forward to this. And, and make sure that you take credit for the platform you've created, the size of your audience, the diversity of, of the bring in, but also... There aren't a lot of podcasts that go on as long as yours, you know, in length. And I've been really looking forward to this one because so many times uh, I enjoy every podcast I do, but so many times it is, what are your, like, what are your three principles? Tell me about them. And then you're moving on or you don't even get to finish really talking about it. Um, and sometimes going like this through the conversation, this is, I mean, that's real, that's real life, right? And that, nothing is perfectly straight through that. So 
and I think I think it strengthens what we've been talking about, which is everything's related. You can't just assume, you know, fixing one thing is going to fix another. There are always factors you haven't considered and, and they're worthy of discovering and worthy of consideration. And chances are people around you know some of those factors. So create that space and allow people to put those factors on your radar and you'll be better for it and they'll be better for it.